This is Jocko Podcast number 413 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. Ryan Larkin deployed on heavy combat tours between 2008 and 2013, where he would blow through thick walls and doors, fire weapons with a powerful blast, and be exposed to improvised bombs. In one video, he is seen as he stands by, his fingers in his ears, as another soldier blasts a rocket launcher a few feet away. He would say to me, Mom, it would just clear out my sinuses, and you could feel it. It was so unbelievable, Jill Larkin said. The vibrations left microscopic tears in her son's brain, so small that MRIs and PET scans couldn't detect the damage while he was living. Survivors of explosive attacks often report headaches, difficulty sleeping, trouble concentrating, irritability, and memory problems. A 2017 study of eight deceased military personnel found that blast exposure produces scarring legions in in the brain. When Larkin returned home after his third tour, his brain had changed. He was a different kid, totally, his mother said. Larkin started having trouble sleeping. He complained of headaches and became short-fused. He stopped smiling, and his relationships started to erode. He deployed on his final tour in Afghanistan's Helmand province, an area with a high rate of enemy contact. When he returned home, he was more anxious and confused. He was hard to talk to, his parents said. When he was able to sleep, he would have nightmares. Larkin began teaching other SEALs explosive breaching techniques in San Diego, where he was exposed to blast waves daily. Eventually, he was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. The Navy referred him him to several programs. Some were helpful, others destructive. The common theme was a prescription for medication, his parents said boxes of medication would arrive at their house. Every time we turned around, somebody was writing a new prescription for some type of drug, Frank Larkin, Ryan's father, said. Over two years, Ryan Larkin was prescribed over 40 medications, his father reported. The drugs made him feel worse, and he was labeled operationally unfit and mentally unstable. Without a customized care plan, He started losing trust in the institution he loved above all else. He's the only one that said something was wrong with his head, Frank Larkin said. Ryan would say, something is wrong with my head. I don't know what it is, but they keep telling me I'm nuts. I'm crazy. He was honorably discharged from the Navy in 2016. He was referred to a veterans hospital for treatment which felt like being abandoned. The lack of science explaining traumatic brain injuries led the Larkins to countless doctors and therapists, but they never got a definitive diagnosis. You become very vulnerable with a lack of good science to help support your decisions, Frank Larkin said. He said they almost spent themselves into bankruptcy on different treatments. When you see someone like Ryan circling the drain, You'll do anything, he said. 
And those are some excerpts from an article from the Washington Post by Lily Price from February of 2020. And Frank and Jill Ryan's mom and dad did everything that they could. Ryan's dad, Frank, had also been in the SEAL teams in the late 70s and early 80s. Ryan is what's known as a legacy, a SEAL whose father was also a SEAL. But despite his father's understanding of the Navy and the SEAL teams and of the job, Ryan continued to suffer. And on April 23rd, 2017, he killed himself. He had told his dad months before he killed himself that he wanted his brain to be studied. He knew there was something wrong. And after he died, his brain was studied at Walter Reed National Military Center where a doctor discovered a severe level of microscopic brain injury uniquely related to blast exposure. But it was too late. And in an effort to prevent this from happening to more service members in the future, Frank Larkin has made it his mission to get the funding, research, and protocols in place to help our service members before it's too late. And it's an honor to have Frank Larkin with us here tonight to discuss his life, his son's life, and the lessons he learned through service and sacrifice for him and his family. Frank, thanks for coming down and joining us. Um, clearly just a horrific scenario. And I spent the last few days talking to, talking to people that worked with Ryan over the years, um, his master chiefs, some of his chiefs, and you just get this picture of a kid who is what you want a young frogman to be. Uh, he was fired up. He was hardworking. He was squared away at everything he did. And what everyone said was he took a turn that was totally out of character of who he, what he was like prior to. And this is a, a story that I heard as well. I've heard before. Uh, from other SEALs and SEALs family members who see a, a different person after a certain period of time in the SEAL teams. And just a tragic uh, scenario. And obviously no one knows that better than you. And it's it's an honor to have you on here just to be able to share what you've learned, what you discovered, and what we can do to try and prevent this kind of thing in the future. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks, uh, Jocko and Echo Charles here. Uh, glad to be here, and you know, my intent is just to help folks understand, so that we, no one else has to walk this path of pain. So let, let's get into your background a little bit. Your, where are you from? Wh- how'd you grow up? So I'm originally from Philadelphia. So I, I talk fast and with my hands. You know, an Irish kid grew up in a Italian neighborhood. Um, you know, just uh, nothing out of the ordinary. Just uh, had a good childhood. You know, came from a large family. Uh, what did your What did your mom and dad do? Uh, 
My dad was a uh, was into advertising and marketing, and then my mom was uh, a homemaker for many years, and then uh, went back to school, became a nurse, and eventually a real estate agent, and you know became that independent woman that said, you know, you know, I I can do this on my own, and uh, so she's. My dad's not, uh, you know, he, he passed uh, 25 plus years ago, uh, but my mom's still alive and uh, kind of uh, on, on, her, on her final runway, uh, you know, probably soon to depart. Mm-hmm. Did you have any veterans in the family growing up? No, I was the first, so I, I kind of broke the ice. So how, how'd, you hear about the, how'd you hear about the Navy? So I was in high school, and, and I'll be honest with you, Jocko, I, I mean, I— I was an average kind of, you know, student. Um, You know, my grades were so-so until my senior year, and then all of a sudden the light came on, and, you know, I went from, you know, a CD student to straight A's. Um, But honest with you, you know, I, as a lot of my, you know, fellow students were were pointed in in going to college, I I just felt that I wasn't ready yet. Mm -hmm. You know, I I need to grow up a little bit. So, Did you uh, play sports or anything? Yeah, so I, I played soccer, I ran track, some wrestling. Um, I like to mix it up. Mm-hmm. I also, you know, was working. I, I've been working since I was like eleven years old. You know, I started delivering papers. You know, uh, you know, on a bicycle, and the next thing you know, I was working at a grocery store, slamming cans into shelves and and uh, pushing carts back, you know, into the bin. And uh, uh, from there. You know, I, I said, uh, you know, once I graduate from high school that, you know, the other thing is Vietnam was still, you know, churning along. Mm-hmm. We, we were starting to wind down, but, you know, the draft was still active. I had a low draft number. And I said, uh, uh, even though my grades were good in my senior year, they weren't good enough to get into the schools I wanted to get into. So I said, well, let me uh, – you know, kind of take the bull by the horns, which is kind of a, a metaphor for how I looked at life. It was all about adventure and taking control. I said, well, I'm going to list in the Navy, and um, and that's what I did. Did you know what the SEALs were at the time? No, no. I had actually I had been in for uh, a period of time. I had a buddy that um, had, had, had just um, started training, and he told me about it, and it caught my attention. This is once you were already in the Navy? Yeah, yeah. I, I know I, what did you go in the Navy to do? Yeah, so I was a corpsman. Okay. And uh, he, was, he was down, gone through training, and, and I had never heard of it. Um, so, you know, one thing led to another. I, I put my uh, application in through my command. I was told no. And, uh, and then I, you know, went back to my buddy. I said, hey, look, you know, they're denying my you know, my uh, application, you know, to come down here. And he says, well, let me, let me uh, talk to some folks. Where were you stationed when this was going down? At Camp Pendleton. So you were with the Marines? I was with the Marines. So uh, I'll, I'll never forget. And this uh, is what, 1970? 73. 74. Got it. And then, uh, and then next thing you know, you know, I, I've got, uh, you know, called into the CO's office and, and he's pissed. <laughs> and he's saying, I don't know what you did, but I've got orders for you. You know, to, you know, to go to Coronado, I told you I was going to deny any of your requests. But, you know, the next thing you know, he said uh, his departing words were, you fail, you're coming right back to me. That's the deal I cut. And that was my motivator. So, but, um, you know, 
tremendous experience. It was really uh, foundational for me. Um, you know, it was the first real team dynamic that I had been involved in. Uh, some, um, I, I just think, you know, I, I credit it with, you know, the successes that I, I've been able, you know, fortunate to have in my life. Um, and, and then, you know, to come back and circle back with the teams later in life, uh, not only with my son, you know, as he joined the teams, but, uh, you know, directly supporting the teams, you know, during the uh, global war on terror. And we can get into that. Yeah. And, what, so what class were you in? What Bud's class were you 84. in? 84. So what, what class got, wasn't that around the class that everyone quit or didn't, no one made it? What was that, class 80 or something like that? Yeah, there's, there's something, you know, one of the classes, I don't know the specifics of it, but uh, one of them lost a lot of, a lot of folks. There was a class that yeah. they, because when I went through, which was in the in 1990 or 1991, they would tell us about, I think it was class like 80 or class 82 or something like this. It was yeah. one of these classes, and they called it the class that never was. And yeah. basically they had so many people quit or get dropped that they were down to a handful of guys and they just rolled all of them into the next class. So there's a class that just didn't exist. Yeah, I think I think weather had a lot to do with it. It was a really harsh, you know, winter period and you know it can get pretty bad, you know, um, on that coast coastline. Oh yeah. You know, especially if, you know It ain't Baywatch. Oh no. People think San oh, no. Diego's Baywatch. Oh. And then they show up here, touch that water, and they go, yo. Well, and I'll tell you what, and, and your nuts go right to the back of your throat. So, you know, at least you know where they are. <laughs> so when you showed up to Bud's, were you in good shape? Did you start training for it? Did your buddy that had gone through, was he telling you, hey, this is what you need to do to be ready? Yeah, there wasn't much, you know, uh, out there about mm -hmm. it. Uh, so I started running the hills, you know, up in Camp Pendleton. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, all times of the day, you know, depending on, uh, what my work schedule was, and then you know when I was wasn't working, I was working as a uh, wildland firefighter uh, part time, Dang, and, right and, and that would you know really tighten you up. <laughs> yeah, um, no doubt. Oh yeah. So you know you're up there in some extreme conditions. You know you're you're moving into a fire uh, while you know everything that's still alive is moving away from it. You know, so you know, rattlesnakes are crawling between your legs, and rabbits and everything else are going the other direction. But I think that that kind of set me up. But um, no matter how good I think you go down there, but the physical condition obviously is important. It's really what's in your head and your heart. And uh, did you have any major challenges? How were you in the water? Uh, I was pretty good. I wasn't the fastest, mm -hmm. you know. But I think you know the folks that were the fastest and the slowest got most of the attention. Yeah. So if you kind of <laughs> hung in the middle, you know, you were kind of blending in a little bit more. My 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 uh, best uh, evolution was the O course. You know, because I was, you know, you can tell, you know, obviously nobody can see me here, you know, physically, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm this hulking, you know, <laughs> five foot eight, you know, 160 pound, you know, giant. Uh, but I, I could throw myself over, you know, the obstacles, mm -hmm. you know, pretty easily. And, and they had, a lot, you know, some pretty good upper, you know, body strength, which, you know, now in my, my late 60s is, you know, you know, not the same place it was, <laughs> uh, but still, you know. But it, it, it's, you know, I think it's an experience. It's, it's you know, as you know, and, and, you know, a lot of the, the folks that have been through it, it's, it's, it's definitely something that, you know, cars, uh, uh, you know, a, a pretty deep imprint into, you know, who you are and, and shapes who, who you're going to be. Mm -hmm. And I think everybody obviously has different experiences, but 
I will say mine were, were good. I had, you know, cross paths with some tremendous leaders you know, back then. Um, whether you liked them or not, I worked for Dick Marcinko. <laughs> um, you know, guys like Bob Schamberger, you know, God rest his soul. You know, he and I were roommates. Um, you know, he was one of the first, you know. Um, what was Marcinko, your skipper at Team 2? Yeah. Oh, right on. Yeah. And, uh, I, I, and, I, and he either liked you or he didn't. There was no middle ground. So it was a pretty, you know, solid line that separated those two. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know. You know, Marcinko is uh, definitely a polarizing figure. Uh, one of my platoon commanders who is a prior enlisted guy, who is a prior senior chief, who is a – had been stationed all over the place and just a highly respected guy and definitely the leader that I've always tried to emulate. One time we were talking, and this was in the 90s, I mean, so I guess the book Rogue Warrior had come out in in 1990 maybe, so now it's probably 1993, 1994, and I'm talking to this guy, and he had been, you know, a plank owner uh, with with Marcinko, working for Marcinko, and I said to him, I said, hey, you know, hey, sir, what, what, was, what was Marcinko really like? What, what's he like? And he just looked at me and said, best skipper ever. That's, what he, that's all he said. And this guy wasn't, you know, this guy was just, just a straight shooter. And I've always remembered that. Like all the things you hear about Marcinko, look, he's definitely a, a character, definitely, a, um, definitely brought a lot of attention to himself and the teams. And, but when a guy like the person that told me this just looked at me and said, best skipper ever, and this guy that told me this is not, um, he doesn't really fit that mold. You know, like this guy is more of a straight shooter and a little bit more, uh, I would say a little bit more Navy, <laughs> like big Navy traditional, type, traditional yeah. type, type military guy. Just looked at me and said, best skipper ever. So I know that the guys that, that worked for Marcinko definitely, in, in many cases, they loved him and admired him. So, uh, so, he, so, so you get done with Bud's. Did you get rolled back or anything? No. Just made it through first time every time. Yeah, went to two, uh, did a hop skate. Well, could you to, could uh, you go could you have gotten stationed at UDT back then? Because you this is still yeah, in UDT. Yeah, that's right. How did they pick who was going to SEAL team? You know, uh I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, I think they asked us West Coast, East Coast. I elected the East Coast and um, you know, wound up at two, mm-hmm. uh working for um you know, Rudy Bosch, yeah. uh, which was a legend. Yeah. Uh, Bull Knox, another name from, from the past. Um, you know, the, these were, and, and a lot of the guys were just, you know, coming off Vietnam. So I was going to say, yeah, you're getting there in 19, so you get there in 1975. 75, it's, uh, you know, the guys are coming in and, uh, you know, you um, r- really have some combat experienced, you know, folks, you know, no nonsense. Um, you know, they played hard, they worked hard, but they were also carrying some burdens coming back. You know, some of them got beat up pretty good. Yeah, I was talking to one of my friends that checked into SEAL Team 1 in like 1972, and he said like they went out and PT'd, and he's back there taking a shower, and like you could see, I, I mean, basically every guy's wounded. Every guy had yeah, scars, every right. guy had bullet holes in him. He said it was definitely a, a very interesting time. There's only there was only 150 seals period right. and so it was it was a very very small community and i, I remember cutting metal out of guys you know for 
Oh, that's know, right, because you were a corpsman. Yeah, years later, you know, I was cutting metals, you know, because the body would eventually start to push that out. Uh-huh. And, um, but, you know, getting back to Demo Dick, you know, I, I would characterize the same thing. You know, whether you agreed with him or not, you know, he took care of his people. And, uh, you know, he, you know, there was no door that he wasn't going to go through. He drew, you know, he moved to contact and drew fire. Um, he had his way, and uh, you either got on board or, you know, you, you found yourself squashed, you know, <laughs> like a bug. Um, but, yeah, the guys that came out, um, you know, um, you know, I, I, probably the closest one I was, you know, was Schamberger, you know, um, and actually, you know, we, we had taken one of the dogs that had come back from Nam as, as in, you know, took him home. Mm-hmm. You know, by then he was getting old, big old German shepherd by the name of Rennie. 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 Okay. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Sham, Sham was a, you know, um, kept things close to the vest, you know, had, had a great rep in the teams. Of course, you know, he, you know, we lost him, you know, in, um, uh, in the op, uh, down in the Caribbean, mm-hmm. um, where, you know, we lost uh, three others on a drop. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it was, it was a different time. And then the reason I bring that out is because, you know, as I watched, you know, my son, you know, get in, go into training, you know, get into the teams and so forth, I, you could definitely see the, the, the difference, the contrast. And I'm sure you could see that you know, with some of the, the younger guys that, you know, you work with. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a different time. And, you know, not surprising because nothing ever stays the same. Things changed, you know, where, we're, uh, you know, it, it ebb, things ebb and flow depending on the geopolitical, you know, uh, state within the world and, and what we're challenged with. But, you know, as we get more and more into, uh, you know, a modern warfare uh, state, um, there are going to be new challenges that, you know, we need to be able to, you know, operate Mm -hmm. and, you know, to have that level of maneuverability. So when you showed up in 19, so was it 1975 when you got to team two? Yep. And you show up there, you get put into a platoon? Yeah, got put into a platoon. And, you know, by then, you know, you're, you know, the roaches on the floor are treated better, you know. You know, you do all the scut work, and that's okay. You go in there knowing it, and just keep your mouth shut, and uh, otherwise, someone's <laughs> going to shut it for you. And and, and it, it's not going to be a you know, it's not going to be somebody coming up and putting their arm around you or anything. You you know, you're going to get a hard pop in the face, or, or next thing you know, you're going to be looking at the floorboards. Uh, it was a different time, yeah. but definitely made its impression. Um, you and know, so was this team too, was they, were they still doing the uh, European like workup and stuff? Were you training on skis and all that stuff? Yeah. So, you know, you'd have your deployments uh, to Norway and uh, Canada. Uh, you know, you'd have joint uh, exercises with, um, you know, other coalition nations, uh, which was good because you got to see things. Uh, I remember doing a tour in, uh, with the Berlin Brigade. You know, which was kind of interesting. The wall was still up. You know, kind of going through Checkpoint Charlie, and you know, doing some pretty interesting things. You know, with the unit that was there. Mm-hmm. You know, in the midst of Berlin, that you know still was was you know very much uh, the the impression of World War II was still alive, mm-hmm. and and now you had this this you know very stark separation of you know looking across the wall and seeing nothing but gray and black. And then you'd look on, 
you know, the, the free side and, and it would be all these neon lights and a lot of color and movement and so forth. So I remember those days, but kind of an interesting piece of terrain to, to operate in and uh, really, you know, kind of, you know, wires up a whole different level of senses uh, to be able to, to, to move in, in an environment like that. Just knowing that, you know, my, my takeaway when I came out of there was, you know, I, I couldn't put any f- my finger on actually what was the, you know, the basis for the economy there other than the fact that everybody was following somebody. So, you know, it was a whole kind of, you know, societal mix of people just following other people. And, you know, it was pretty, pretty interesting place. Now, this is post-Vietnam. The Navy, the whole military is downsizing. I know they took guys after Vietnam. The guys got sent from the SEAL teams to the fleet. Like there's yeah. a, a guy, the Dirty Dozen from SEAL Team 1. They took guys from the SEAL team that had been in the SEAL team, made it through BUDS, and they took those guys and said, yeah, we don't need you in the SEAL teams anymore, and they sent them to the fleet. The fleet made them do it. Uh, what was that downsizing like? Were you seeing that? You know, um, it, it was it was interesting because, um, you know, at the time, you know, Big Navy was not exactly treating, you know, naval special warfare very well. And, you know, after the war, there's a lot of questions. <laughs> sometimes naval special warfare doesn't treat the Big Navy very well. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, it's a two-way street. <laughs> it's a two-way you know, street. And, and again, I, you know, <laughs> I guess we could have a whole show on that. But. Have you read Ben Milligan's book, By Water Beneath the Walls? Yeah, I was just with him not too long yeah, ago. I yeah. mean, that, that really is just an incredible book yeah. and really lays out so much. And it shows you that even though it can be a tenuous relationship between the big Navy and, and the SEAL teams and Naval Special Warfare, ultimately when that relationship works, it's, it's, it's amazing. And, but, you know, when, when the SEAL teams aren't needed like as much, it's very easy for them to get sloughed off to the side. And that's what was happening in the 70s. Yeah, you know, when, when they're when they're kind of, you know, reaching deep, you know, into the couch cushions and all for the coins to, to be able to build <laughs> new ships and, and just even to be able to rehab ships that needed work, you know, or, or planes, you know, back then it was, you know, a lot of the aviation wings were, were you know, almost non-operational because they just couldn't get, you know, keep airplanes flying. And I, I remember being on the ranges, you know, we would need some vehicles and we couldn't get any vehicles. So we'd go out and, you know, these these old, you know, beat up Jeeps and, you know, six buys and four buys, you know, we, we would, you know, haul them off the, the range and start pulling parts <laughs> off of them and build a whole new vehicle, you know, that, you know, yeah. we would, we would use, you know, and, and, uh, it's just the way it was, you yeah. know, to throw some new paint on it and, you know, kind of, you know, go to town, but yeah. Or we'd go out, you know, to camping stores and stuff and, and, you know, because the stuff that we were getting, and this was like a big contrast between what you see now, mm-hmm. the kit that, you know. Uh, they get some the op- good oh, gear yeah, right now. Yeah, top, it's epic. Yeah, it is. But back then, I remember, you know, we would be spray painting r- red sleeping bags, you know, <laughs> you know, that, you know, were, you know, uh, you know, top of the line, you know, you know, uh, pieces of gear that just, you know, weren't our, our color uh, to, to use <laughs> operationally. So we had to kind of, you know, do our thing. And, and so a lot of, a lot of guys would, you know, out of pocket, you know, kind of gear themselves up, you know, for, for yeah. the job back then, you know, you had some, um, some interesting activity going on. You started seeing the rise of terrorism, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the red army faction, the red brigade, 
was lifting its head up, you know, in Europe. You had um, you had some Cuban infiltration going on down in Central America around the Canal Zone and other places. Um, and then Africa was always, you know, a place that, you know, kind of, you know, resided below the, the surface, but you knew bad things were gone there. You just didn't have the throw weight or, or the reach mm-hmm. in Africa to, to, you know, to understand exactly what was taking place. So how many deployments did you do at SEAL Team 2? Well, the deployments that, that I had were, were kind of, you know, short trips out to do, you know, training or we would do, you know, maybe a recon op. So it wasn't the deployments in the traditional sense that we saw, you know, like I saw with my son, you know, six or 12 month, mm-hmm. you know, pumps. Uh, you know, they still had the, uh, the MARG going on where, mm-hmm. you know, you'd float for a while with a, you know, a Marine detachment for six months. That was about it. Never made one of those. Um, I didn't have an interest to really do one of those. <laughs> so uh, were you guys doing basically like a deploy for purpose? Like if you, if there was a, a J set or an exercise to be done over yes. in Europe, you'd fly over there, do the exercise and come back home. Exactly it. Oh right? wow. Right. And they had, they had a couple, you know, um, exchange programs going mm-hmm. where they would send guys over for a period of time and then come back and same with you know for instance the germans the brits would send folks over yeah uh get some koreans you know rock marines you know coming over uh, but it was a different time you know the money was really tight mm-hmm. and so you pretty much a lot of you know your your preparation you know for you know doing what you needed to do was was you know done at ap hill or or you know you know which you know, in hindsight, I should have bought property there, you know, vacation property along the Rappahannock would have been beneficial. But anyway, spent a lot of time there. Um, and then I don't think you saw the, the um, almost the, the next evolution, uh, you know, what I would say positive evolution came after Desert One, mm-hmm. you know, where um, you saw the stand-up of Special Operations Command, um, Joint Special Operations Command, and then you know the establishment of our counterterrorism force, mm-hmm. and then you know all the feeders and support elements that went into that, mm-hmm. and that was you know after my my time. So you ended up getting out of active duty in what year? Uh, Seventy eight, and then stayed active reserve until um, uh, eighty one. When you say active reserve, does that mean you were like working every day? Is that what active reserve is? No, you, you come in and, you know, you do your time uh, like you know, weekends. One, once a month and then come in and do a deployment uh, or, or some type of training op during the summer. You know, then that could be that could be, you know, a couple of weeks all, all the way to a couple of months, depending on where, you know, the tasking was. Mm-hmm. You know, I was a student at the time. I was going to the university up in Philadelphia. And so I would try to, you know, spend as much time you know, in, in that, you know, active summer period or, or the, as much time as I could in the summer period you know, on active status. So get that money. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was good money. And what were you going to school for? Uh, sociology and criminal justice. Were um, you looking at like, I'm, I'm going to be a cop? You know, I was looking to come back in. Oh, really? Yeah. And um, were you going to try and get a commission? Yep. Yep. Okay. I was going to come back in, but got bitten by the law enforcement bug. And, you know, next thing you know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm walking a beat in the Philadelphia area, probably one of the more, uh, you know, uh, formative experiences that I've had in my life, you know, as a, as a, you know, middle class, you know, white bread, 
you know, dude suddenly dropped into, you know, a neighborhood where I, I no doubt I was the outsider. Mm-hmm. So what was, what, would you graduated from college and then you went to what, police academy? No, so I was still uh, in college, uh, finishing up my senior year when I uh, took took on the job with the police department. So I finished my uh, senior year over the course of two years, mm-hmm. uh, just because I had to dodge shift work and, and, and <laughs> Got so it. forth. So. How was the police academy? How long was that? Uh, that was about six months. Uh-huh. So. Did you learn anything? Was it cool? Was it yeah, mostly I, legal? Uh, you know, a lot of legal, you know, how to operate in those environments, you know, a lot of weapons training, which, you know, I've been through a lot of different weapons training programs, depending on what I was involved in. So you have to kind of park all, all your prior experience and do it their way. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, again, you, you draw fire and that, you know, literally, yeah. and, and, you know, you don't make friends. Uh, so it, it was it was a good experience. I mean. You know, you had to know the law. You had to know how to maneuver in that space, and so to keep yourself out of trouble. And uh, it was a tough, tough uh, department. Um, where, know, where were you? Were you? So you were a beat cop. Yep. And where where were you? What so town? Was, what yeah, city? just outside of Philadelphia, in a, in a town, urban uh, element called Narstown, mm-hmm. uh, just on the edge of Philadelphia. A real tough neighborhood uh, or or piece of terrain, and uh, it, t- it taught me how you know walking the beat. Uh, really taught me, you know, how to kind of integrate into uh, um, a neighborhood that, you know, didn't want me. You know, they hadn't had a beat cop in like 20 years working there. And, um, you know, I got to know the people and I, I just started with the basics, you know, of, of just, you know, just talking to people. Um, I'd see, you know, elderly, you know, women, you know, dragging you know shopping bags home from you know the store and you know you know shuttling their way up the the sidewalk and i'd come up and i'd pick up their bags and carry their bags for them or you could have a kid that you know didn't have a bicycle i'd go look for a bicycle for him you know uh so that he could you know kind of you know be with the other kids mm-hmm. so you and, start building relationships with the folks in the neighborhood basically yeah yeah and and it wasn't about locking everybody up for every little you know freaking crime or 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 you know incident it was about you know being accessible and that's kind of how you know what i try to share with you know new officers that i talk to you know today mm-hmm. they're just coming out of the academy and and i share a story that you know um you know, I had three principles that, you know, I always stuck to is that one was, you know, treat others the way you want to be treated. And then, then you got to ask that question in reverse. How do you think they want to be treated? Which we don't always ask that Mm -hmm. question. And then the second one was treat everybody with respect, Mm -hmm. no matter what, you know, you know, a lot of them don't have control over, you know, their, their environments or, you know, it's kind of what they were handed. And the third was never take somebody's dignity away. That's when you're going to get a fight. <laughs> and uh, so in, in doing that, you know, I think I was able to, you know, build relationships in it. And, you know, one night, um, you know, late afternoon, uh, I came around the corner and there was a, uh, a pretty prominent drug leader, uh, dealer uh, doing business uh, with his gang. Um, and came around, you know, at, at probably the worst time and got caught, caught up right in the middle of the deal and it turned into a, you know, a street brawl right there. And 
and and you know from you know doing your street head. brawl meaning what like all out you, you grab the guy yeah. you, you tried to arrest him people are running people are swinging at you like what happened yeah yeah that's basically it i mean mm-hmm. you're into it you know you know punches are flying you're you're trying to you know drag on to people they're you trying got a partner to, with you no just no. solo operations. Solo operations just basically got a radio call out that I needed help. Didn't even know if it got out. And uh, you feel people reaching for your gun Yeesh. and you're trying to protect your weapon. And uh, and I just remember that you know things started getting dark. You, you know how they you know <laughs> you know everything comes in from the mm-hmm. periphery and it gets more narrower and narrower. And you know you're just trying to you know and probably the last thing I heard were, were sounds of sirens you know coming. But the next thing I remember is that, you know, uh, these folks from the neighborhood were helping me back up to m- on the street and, and back up hadn't gotten there yet. And, you know, as I kind of, you know, kind of got my balance again and kind of my wits about me, I, I saw, you know, three of these, you know, you know, dudes, you know, down out cold on the street. And the fourth one was slammed up against the wall. And I remember this woman. You know, she, she she had her finger going into his chest and, you know, that's our cop. You don't mess with him. You know, don't ever, ever, you know, that, don't ever mess with him. You'll, next time it's going to be you down there and you're going to be dead. You know, we're going to take care of you. Don't mess with him. And so some of the local neighborhood people came out and saved yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, just came out of, the, out of the woodwork. You know, they saw what was going on. You know, um, I mean, they didn't like this gang being, you know, operating on the street, you know, you know, mo- most of these gangs terrorize the locals anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, they bully them, and then uh, you know when I got and you know it's, a, it's you know there's a different code on the street. You know, it's all about fairness. You know, they, they have their own mm-hmm. fairness code. And then when they saw me, you know, with four on one, uh, that wasn't fair. Plus, you know, I had built this relationship over the prior nine months or so, and you know, uh, as fast as it happened, it was over. And uh, but it taught me a real powerful lesson, you know, and how relationships mean everything. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, again, you know, treating people, you know, the, the way they want to be treated with respect and, and dignity mm-hmm. uh, can take you a long way. And, and that's, that's part of the, the thing I, I think I, I would share about leadership, uh, you know, as a core principle is is you know it's not not to lose your compassion not to lose your sense of you know empathy once you do that and you know if you become a cold bastard a cold leader i I think you go to a different place Mm -hmm. you know and that's not saying that you can't be a tough leader but when you lose your sense of you know compassion and empathy I think that puts you at higher risk for being um, a bad leader. Oh, yeah. I I always tell people, like, look, you can't make your decision based on emotions, but you have to put them in the calculus of the decisions that you're making. And that's not just your emotions, but the emotions of the team, too. Are they frustrated? Are they mad? Are they tired? Like, what are they feeling? And if you start doing things that don't make sense from an emotional standpoint, you're going to end up with problems. And so, look, we don't want to make our decisions based on emotion, but that doesn't mean we're devoid of emotion because otherwise you're going to have problems. So how long did you end up staying on that, like, as a beat cop for? For about a year, and then I got into the patrol, and then from there moved into, uh, uh, jumped uh, to a different part 
uh, of, of law enforcement uh, into plain clothes working some narcotics uh, investigations for a while and they went into homicide. It was uh, the youngest homicide detective um, on, on the department. So, and that was experience, you know, doing, you know, death investigations and so forth, which is, you know, um, something I, c I can elaborate on more as, as we talk about, you know, um, veteran suicide, mm -hmm. you know, with, unless we want to talk about it now. Go ahead. Yeah, you know, so we get these numbers that get put out by the VA or, or you know, whoever is projecting, you know, is it a 22 veterans a day that we lose to suicide? Is it 17, whatever? You know, as a student of statistics, I know you can manipulate numbers, but not saying, you know, um, you know, their calculus is wrong, but as a as a homicide uh, detective, you know, doing death investigations, I know that, you know, you call your, your, your findings based on evidence. So, you know, if you've got evidence that's a homicide, then it's a homicide. If it's a suicide, you know, there may have been a note, there may have been some other, uh, you know, evidence, you know, on scene to consider that definitely puts it into the suicide category or an unattended death because, you know, they had been sick or they made a cancer or it was a, you know, got hit by a car. But there, there's this big gray area that sits in the middle where you don't have enough evidence to call it one way or the other, but yet it, it's an unattended death. And, and so I think that there's an undercounting of what really exists. And then there's this other piece that comes in, and, and it's, it's part of the reality is that because suicide is such a stigma in our society that I think is starting to, to, to soften. But you, you have somebody that's taken their life and then you look at the family and sometimes, you know, the you know, way you classify a situation like that may not be a suicide in order to protect the family because the family will have nothing. Um, if it's if it's declared a suicide, you know, um, very often they will not get insurance. They will not get other, you know, benefits, and and then have to to live with potentially the stigma uh, of that suicide. So I just throw that out there. You know, it's kind of out of this you know um, sequence of what we're talking about. But my homicide experience definitely, I think, has given me credibility to go back at some of those numbers that are being projected every year by the VA and others that, you know, probably not, you know, a, you know, the, an accurate picture of how right. many we're actually losing. And, and because each state reports differently, we don't have a, you know, a national database that actually, you know, records uh, these suicides in, in a common format. So there's a lot of, a lot of, like I said, gray area for those numbers to be, you know, pulled in different directions. Yeah. When you're in that job of homicide de detective, like how many homicides are there? Like how many cases are you working at a time? Is it is it in the in the area where you were working? Was it like one murder a month? Was it ten? What was it like? It comes ebbs and flows. Holidays are the worst. But basically, you're you're taking caseloads. You might have three or four, you know, homicides that you may be working in at a time, depending on on the caseload availability of you know manpower. Um, some of the cases are, are pretty clear cut. 
you know, you know, you know, a dispute that goes bad between two people that know each other versus, you know, uh, probably the most, the hardest, you know, investigations where you have a situation where somebody uh, comes in out from outside the area is not known, doesn't really leave a lot of signatures uh, as far as their presence there and winds up, you know, killing somebody and you're trying to figure out, you know, who, who may be responsible and, and they've already left the area mm-hmm. and, you know, very little trace as to, you know, who, what they were. What is that doing to your, you know, when you're coming home at night and you've just been looking at whatever uh, crime scenes, murder scenes all day, what is, what's that like coming home at night? Well, I can tell you that, you know, you know you're human too, you know, and so as, as much as you build up some, some insulation and you try to inoculate yourself and, and stay professional, it, it does, you know, kind of wear on you. And because of my medical background, I would get all the homicides uh, or suspicious death investigations that involve kids. And that, that was tough um, to deal with. And, and it, it almost caused some, some problems with my marriage because, you know, you know having contact with, with these type of scenarios, I didn't want to bring any kids into the world. Whereas my wife, you know, yeah, she, she, she wanted to have kids and I didn't want to have kids for a period of time. So, you know, at some point I made the decision to, um, move on. Um, and, and that's when, you know, I applied to, uh, the secret service and the FBI and subsequently was, was hired, uh, in as a special agent with the secret service. What, when you're talking about kids getting killed, like who's, what, what, what's a scenario where a kid gets murdered? Is this child abuse gone to an extreme? That is that like the most common thing? Yeah, what I see are parents that aren't prepared to be parents. Um, a lot of them have been raised up in, in uh, households that there was a lot of abuse, so they didn't know any better. You know, so you get your shaken baby syndrome, or or a kid wouldn't stop crying. And, and I remember one case, uh, you know, the, the father had stuffed a. Uh, a, a you know, a, a stuffed toy down the kid's throat, you know, uh, a toddler's throat. Um, in other cases, they, they would, you know, burn the kid to, to try to get him to stop, you know, uh, screaming or yelling. And in some cases, you know, it was, believe it or not, the, the, the parent, uh, you know, um, felt that the kid was taking all their attention away from the other parent. And so, you know, in in their, you know, kind of limited way of processing, you know, eliminating the competition. I mean, it's it's pretty. Uh, and then you'd have the neglect scenarios where they wouldn't feed the kid or they keep the kid locked up in a room or, you know, so the tough cases. How do you uh, kind of control yourself? You know, I've always said I'd be the worst cop ever because, like, I run into a situation like that. I feel like it'd be very difficult to you know, see a parent that clearly had killed their own kid or be burned their own kid to death. That's got to be um, a, an exercise in restraint unlike any other. Yeah, I, I mean, you got to reach deep. I'll be honest with you. You know, you definitely want to ex- exercise some street justice in those scenarios. And, you know, how could anybody fault you for it? Uh, some cases, you know, the, you know, the individual that's responsible has got some, you know, serious mental health issues. And like I said, may have some family extension, you know, some experiences on how they were raised. They don't know any different. Uh, but yet that's hard to kind of, you know, kind of 
justify and, and resolve, you know, when you're in the heat of that investigation and you're, you're seeing the consequence of that abusive behavior. It's tough. Mm-hmm. It's tough. And, you know, a lot of times you lean on each other to kind of keep yourselves, you know, from falling into that. that. And not unlike, you know, in some cases, you know, the battlefield. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when you experience a hor- horrible situation where you lose a teammate and, you know, the immediate reaction is to, to exercise that that immediate justice and uh, how do you control that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's that's definitely something that the leadership from a leadership perspective you gotta you gotta get make sure you're t- keeping control of the guys because that emo- if if the emotional reaction is allowed then it's going to be a problem and yep. the guys are going to get in trouble. That's something that every leader's got to contend with to make sure that they're keeping that in check. What you? How long had you been married? For what year did you get married? Uh, Eighty one. When I was in the police academy. Okay. And so after this horrible job, I mean, for all practical purposes, you you decide to get out of law enforcement and you go into the Secret Service? Is that when you went to Secret Service? Which is still a quasi-law enforcement, federal law enforcement. So I, I, you know, got into the Secret Service, went through their training, which was, you know, six-plus months uh, of training. Um, You know, they... To me, um, I call them the special operations of law enforcement just by the way they, you know, they behave, the way they operate, you know. They're not a nine-to-five job. Um, you know, most of my career I lived out of, you know, a, you know, a kit bag, you know, because we were on the move all the time. And got to give credit to my wife for raising my two kids, you know. Um, but, you know. What, because I know there's different uh, parts of the Secret Service. What, what job what job did you have when you went to Secret Service? So initially, I started up in the Philadelphia field office as a special agent working criminal investigations. Um, and they do what? Counterfeiting money? They do counterfeiting. They they do um, fraud investigations. Basically, they you know they're responsible for you know protecting the integrity of our our monetary system here in the United States, which is both you know involves paper money and digital. Uh, funds, you know, so they get into a lot of fraud investigations and, and uh, uh, you know, counterfeiting, you know, uh, was was really kind of a, a street level crime that, you know, you know, we would get, it's almost like dope. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you get down on the street levels dealing with people who are passing, you know, bad money mm-hmm. and, um, and got, you know, take you into some interesting investigations, uh, credit card fraud. Uh, again, it's another money instrument. Uh, they had an intelligence arm, which, you know, protective intelligence arm, which, you know, would deal with any threats against the president, vice president, or, or you know, uh, anybody in a senior leadership position. And then um, they had other specialty units that, you know, depending on, um, you know, the assignment it w- would come into play. But protection was, was really what the agency was known for. You know, protecting the president, protecting the vice president, heads of state, uh, or anybody else that's designated, you know, by presidential order, uh, you would have to, you know, build that protection element around them, and and that was a twenty four seven job. So, uh, you know, a lot of holidays away from home, birthdays. So, did you work in each one of those different categories at some point? I did. Yeah. So, I my 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 span of um, service. Uh, was uh, from the Reagan administration through Bush 43. Were you on duty when Reagan got shot? I was, was not. Was that I, prior I, to? I, actually, that was one of my motivators for 
for uh, applying to the Secret Service. And uh, right after that's when I applied and, you know, eventually got processed in. So where are you? So so you're a pretty old dude at this point to be starting out in that job. Am I right? Yeah, yeah. Because you went in the Navy in 74? Three. 73? So you're like 10 years older than the other people, maybe 12 years older? Yeah. Just the old guy on campus, huh? But, you know, (laughs) never never, uh, thought of it, you know. Uh, that way, I mean, I'm in my late 60s now, and as I shared with you earlier, I'm a firefighter paramedic with you know, the city of Annapolis. Wait, how old are you? Late 60s? How old are you? 68. 68, and you're an active duty, full time firefighter. Yeah, paramedic, mm-hmm. doing calls. Yep, getting after it. Working a 24 hour schedule on, 72 hour schedule off. Work with a bunch of great men and women in Annapolis, and they keep me young. Uh-huh. You know, it's it's that tribal connection. What do you talk about tangential? So are you what kind of workouts are you doing? Um, you know, at, at this age, a lot of it's aerobic. You know, you're doing some strength workout basically to keep yourself toned, but you know, not, you know, with the heavy weights that mm-hmm. I used to do. You, you know, still do pull ups and push ups and dips? Oh yeah. 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 I I I can't do as many as I, I, I used to, but I use um a lot of, you know, uh, weight resistance. Mm-hmm. Um you know, uh, you know, training. So if you're doing a if you're doing a workout, how many pull ups are you doing in a workout? About ten. Ten at a time. At a time. So you'll do like sets of ten. No, I'll do ten, and then uh, you know, if I feel like I can't get uh, that full ten, then I'll use uh, like a uh, a band or a whatever band uh, to to try to to continue to to work that resistance and that strength. But uh, I had some shoulder surgery, so. I had to uh, complete reconstruction my shoulder a couple of years ago, so that's taken a while to come back. But so probably use the bands more than I I would like to. But mm-hmm. it's but you're still, on the comeback trail. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> it, there's failure is not an option. I mean, I I, I learned a long time ago um, investment, uh, you know, in your health and, and your fitness, and and I think it's a testimony of where I am today. I'm still doing what I want to do. I still have a you know kind of a you know. Well, it depends on who you ask. I mean, I, I still think, you know, my head's, you know, back in my 20s and 30s, which can get me into trouble because <laughs> I still think I can do stuff. Whereas my wife will tell you that, no, it's my, my head's in a, a lot younger, you know, probably adolescent uh, <laughs> you know, period. But, you know, she she's, uh, I when I met, when I came out of the service, I met her. Um, I was working as a paramedic in the Philadelphia area while I was going to school and she was a, a brand new uh, emergency room nurse uh, ripe for the picking. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <laughs> and so, um, you know, uh, one thing led to another, we got married. So she's, you know, kind of been in the business too, you know. Um, but if you, you know, if you ever have come in contact with any emergency room nurses, you, you, you know, they, they, they suffer no fools. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they see a lot too. And yeah. uh, so, I, I've gotten away with very little in my life. <laughs> she keeps me pretty humble. The, what about food? What are you eating? Uh, you know, I try to stay away from sugar. Mm-hmm. Uh, coffee, I drink black coffee. I, I don't, uh, you know, pour any, any stuff into it. Um, a lot of fruit, uh, fiber, um, meat. I've been pushing away from uh, meat lately and trying to get, you know, I love fish, you know, mm-hmm. any type of fish, um, you know, chicken. So I, I tried to, you know, find a balanced, uh, you know, diet, which I, I feel better. 
mm-hmm. and I don't eat as much as I used to. You know, I used to, you know. You used to get your Philly cheesesteaks on. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, but then you feel like a load afterwards. And, and so I think the, the older you get, there are changes in your body, mm-hmm. your metabolism. So you got to stay on top of that if you want to feel good. You run every day? No, no, I don't run every day. Uh, I'm really trying to preserve uh, my knees. They took a pretty hard hit uh, up in New York uh, on 9-11. Um, you know, we can get into that. But um, since that time, uh, my running has, has really kind of, you know, feathered uh, down uh, to to where, you know, I love to run. I love to run outside. I hate to run on a, on a treadmill. But I'll, I'll use an elliptical more. Uh, I go get in the pool and swim, which I think is probably the the best exercise uh, these days. You know, for me, mm-hmm. besides my my Chuck Norris Total Gym uh, that I have at home. You, you know? got the Chuck Chuck Norris Total Gym. That's yeah. something's kind of like a Pilates situation, isn't it? Echo Charles, yeah, fitness expert. Yes. Yeah, I, it's I like mean, you're you, you're using pulleys to kind of drag yeah. your body weight up and down. You can yeah. set at different levels. And I'll tell you what, you know, uh, I'm not I'm plugging, you know, you know his his uh, kit, but um, you get a pretty good workout. How long have you been on the Chuck Norris Total Body Workout Program? About three years. We're gonna sell some Chuck Norris <laughs> Total Gym huh? Total Gym workouts. I mean, yeah. Chuck Norris is in good shape. How oh, old yeah, is Chuck man. Norris? I don't know. I mean, he was in the Air Force in Vietnam, so he's at least seventy, right? Yeah, yeah, seventy plus. Yeah, he's yeah, still so, getting after it. Yeah, I th- I think it's about you know uh, continuing to pay it forward eating right you know sleep is big you know sleep you know is challenging as you get older because your sleep patterns change mm-hmm. but still sleep is really important so I, you know I, i've got a couple wearables that you know kind of tell me how i'm sleeping of course you know when i'm working a firefighting shift you know you know how that goes you know, <laughs> yeah. two o'clock in the morning and i mean the other night i worked uh 20 actually uh you know uh when i flew out of here yesterday i had just gotten off a shift and and you know it just seemed that you know I swore to, to my partner that every time my head went in contact with a pillow in the bunk room, we got toned out mm-hmm. for a call. And I swore that the dispatch center had some type of sensor in my pillow could could, <laughs> could see when I had put my head down because they would pop us out again. Yeah. So, yeah, sometimes you get the bear and the bear gets you, you know, yeah. but yeah. So it's um, so. It, so what capacity were you in? You just mentioned 9-11. What capacity were you in? Were you with the Secret Service at that time? Yeah. So I had, um, as you said, started at Philadelphia. And from Philadelphia, I went down and uh, took a job in our training division. Uh, after uh, being with the service about three years, I, I took over their emergency medicine training program. All the agents are trained in, in emergency medicine at different levels, mm-hmm. all the way from you know first responder to EMT to, uh, you know, they have a cadre of paramedics. And then, um, and part of that is because, you know, we recognized early on that you got to keep your operational force healthy. And if they're gone down because they're sick or they're hurt, uh, and, and working the schedules that we worked, uh, that can happen pretty quickly. And then with all the overseas deployments, you're in places that, you know, you're not in a 911 system. And this is because you're going ADVON to go because the president's visiting wherever, and you're going ADVON, checking it out setting everything up and then he's there if you're on that team you're there while he's there and then he leaves and then you pack up and go to the next place yeah and it's not always with the president i mean you could be the national security advisor that you're traveling with you know like right now we have 
you know, the, you know, the activity going on in uh, the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Well, I had done a lot of time, you know, in the West Bank and in uh, the Gaza Strip uh, back, you know, when they were brokering peace uh, in the mid '90s, you know, with Arafat uh, yep. and the Israelis. And so, I, you know, interesting working with, you know, uh, the Shin Bet and Mossad. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in, in that environment. But what would you go into Gaza and do? Well, because we, again, by presidential order, we were directed to uh, protect the uh, the uh, U.S. envoy that was trying to broker the the peace agreement back mm-hmm. then. So we would, you know, go into Gaza to meet with Arafat at his headquarters, and that was what a, was your assessment back then? That was oh. a Wild West show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean you. You uh, obviously we go in under you know the protection of the uh, Israeli Defense Forces, but you know we were partnered up with the Shin Bet, and we would go in for these meetings. And you know, while we're having the meetings, you know, somebody's cranking off a, an AK-47 <laughs> in the background. You hear explosions and, and so forth. I remember one time we were we were trekking to one so of the. So this is like early '90s, um, mid '90s. Mid nineties, yeah. Okay, so we're talking Bill Clinton, ninety four, ninety five, ninety five. Yep. yep, tracking. Yep. So, you know, we get into that. Um, that was an experience. Another time, I'm uh, with a national security advisor. Uh, you know, in the middle of Africa, in Burundi, Rwanda, Zaire. Um, you know. The Tutsis and the Hutus were mm-hmm. slaying each other, you know, by the thousands. I was off the coast of I was off the coast of Rwanda at that time in a SEAL platoon. Get on standby, all yeah. spun up, ready to go help out. They didn't send us though. Yeah, yeah, we we rolled in there, a uh, small element uh, of of us uh, that had you know tactical background. You know, the the, the, the guy from uh, a, you know a couple guys that former tier tier one guys. Uh, who were agents, and then myself, and I, of course, I had the med- tactical medical background too, and then uh, a fourth guy that came out of uh, SF uh, were the protection element for this envoy that was trying to, to get in between these two warring tribes. And I, I'll never forget, you know, we get on the ground in, in an unmarked plane. We had worked our way in through Europe, uh, down through, you know, top of Africa, and, and you know, doing refueling stops, land at this airport, that you know, there's there's you know smoke coming up and crashed airplanes at the end of runway and and you know we jump into some vehicles and I remember heading to the embassy you know and and we get there and and it was <laughs> it's like you know we pull up and we get out and we go again and there's just like this little you know like metal you know door <laughs> into into a bigger door that slides aside and says you know who is it and here you know. You know, our embassy staff had been hunkered down behind the walls and hadn't gone outside. And anyway, we wind up going to a, uh, a field hospital that had uh, the day before had been attacked and, and, and people had been pretty, you know, butchered up. You know, it was an environment that, you know, no matter where you went, every bullet, every house had a bullet hole or an RPG hit, you know. It's pretty, you know, uh, bodies strewn all over the place, you know, just, you know, rotting out. Yeah, it's uh, eight, 800,000 Tootsies killed in 100 days. Yeah. It's like one of the most efficient exterminations of human life in history. It is in total insanity. And and, and I, I remember we, we ran into, you know, an element of uh, 
uh, French Foreign Legion, and uh, and they said, you know, what are you guys doing here? And we told them. They said, you got to be kidding me. We don't even go out there, mm-hmm. you know. So you know, again, you know, sometimes you find yourself in places that you just say to yourself, you know, and, and we had our own E and E plan, and it was going to be a violent, um, you know, push out if we had to. Um, you know, we the four of us had kind of made a pact that you know. If things go bad, we're going to take as many of them as we can. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we were going to push out and try to get to the to the lake and then commandeer a boat and you know put some distance between us. But you know we we had a number of sites that we had gone to that were pretty uh, you know to say the least sketchy. But but again, you know the job took you to a lot of different places that you know you never hear about, you never talk about, you know. Yeah, you you know as far as you know media coverage. You're, Are they to looking for a dude like you? That's going to do those gigs, and meanwhile, like Mister Clean Cut, dude's going to get the presidential detail running alongside the limo. Is, is, well, is I've done the, that too. So, okay, so yeah. it doesn't matter. You're going to get those matter. jobs. You know, it depends on you know who's got the skills. And again, it was another opportunity to work with a high caliber, you know, group of folks that um, you know just were very professional. So you know, fortunate to come out of the teams, do that. You know, I had my basic street law enforcement experience, which gave me a whole different. Uh, side of uh, life, uh, but then Secret Service was uh, pretty. Like I said, I, you know, I, I equate them to the special ops of law enforcement. Uh, you know, nobody operates like like the Secret Service does. You know, they you know obviously they drew some attention a number of years ago. You know, it's they're not without you know st- you know stumbling, but you know they don't get a second chance. You know, they got to do it right the first time all the time, especially when it comes to the protection of the president. So. You have this w- wide range of experiences now, and what, so what's your duty? What was your duty on September 11th? Where were you? What was going on? So I was up in the uh, New York field office as a senior supervisor. So that's uh, where you were actually stationed. You had moved yeah, to New York. Yeah, okay. yeah, our largest field office. You know, because the UN's up there. A lot of foreign uh, heads of state coming to New York. And now you're married. And, you yeah, got married. two kids at this time. I got two kids. Um, my daughter was I think 15 at the time my son was 13 or 14 where where in New York do you live in New York where do you live no I lived in Jersey just west of the city you know in in a town called Chatham and Summit which literally um, because it was called Summit you know had a little bit of higher elevation and had an unobstructed view of the whole New York City skyline which is important because uh uh, on that day, um, I, I just basically followed my routine. I would get up early in the morning, like, you know, 5 o'clock in the morning. I, you know, had my, my workout gear, and I, you know, get into the field office. The whole objective was getting through the tunnel before it got clogged up. Mm-hmm. So I'd get into the field office, and then I'd go for a run on the, along the, the uh, Hudson. And I was, a, a, you know, a pretty good runner. And uh, that's how I got my day going, come back into the gym, start pumping some iron, you know. And I remember that day uh, I was running back, and I remember the, looking up at the towers, and it was just a beautiful sight. There wasn't a, a cloud in the sky. The towers were just pristine, you know, just shining. The sun was shining off of them. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, you know, we, we're so lucky that no, nothing's happened. I mean, it's just, it's just, this is one of the days you just live for. And the reason I said that, because I had been in New York um, in 93, um, you know, right after the first bombing mm-hmm. and, and saw the destruction there and how close, you know, um, you know, our adversaries came to drop in the building that mm-hmm. day, which, you know, uh, it came pretty close. Um, 
but yet the uh, the, the experience of, of that particular incident the, uh, calculated into what happened later uh, that day on on 9/11. I got you know back off my run. I was in the shower, stepping out, you know, stark naked, and uh, all of a sudden the lights flickered, and 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 I started razzing the guys. You know, Secret Service agents. You know, they're 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 at the wet sink. They got their hair dryers going. You know, because the hair's got to be in the right place. And I said to them, you know, you got you're going to light yourself up. You know, with those dryers and and you know all the, all that water. And the next thing you know, somebody came over the speakers and said, "Hey, there's been a massive explosion in Tower One." And then uh, and came back and said, "Hey, this is this is not a drill." Um, and within 30 seconds of that, they said, "You know, evacuate the building." Uh, this is not a drill. We've had a major explosion in Tower One. Of course, our office was in Tower Seven, which was uh, besides Tower One and, and Tower Two, which are the two, you know, uh, you know, notable mm-hmm. uh, World Trade Center buildings. Uh, Tower Seven was a 49-story building right next to Tower One, and uh, so I remember, you know, um, you know, everybody's running out, you know. You know, their boxer shorts, whatever, you know, grabbing clothes. I remember going back to my locker and, you know, put my, you know, suit back on, tied my tie, you know, got, you know, and, and I walked out and walked down to my office and, and, uh, and I was able to look out the window and look up at Tower One and I could see the fire just boiling out of, you know, Tower One. And at that point, uh, the agent in charge came by my office and said he was evacuating everybody to a certain location, you know, uh, down the street. And I said to him, look, uh, because of my, you know, prior law enforcement and EMS experience, I said, look, I'll go down with Ford Police and Fire Command and be your, you know, I'll, I'll make contact with them and let you know what's going on. So I grabbed a bunch of radios and pagers and so forth, and uh, I had an NYPD radio with me and went down. You know, first of all, I broke all the rules in the sense that, you know, I went to the stairwell and it was all jammed up full of people. And I said, there's no freaking way I'm getting down, you know, to, to the street here. So I went to the elevator and they tell you, you never go to the elevator when you have to evacuate a building. But I pushed the button, door opened up, nobody was on it, took it right to the first floor. And next thing you know, I'm out and I'm walking out, you know, in front of uh, World Trade 7 towards uh, Building 1. And something had had uh, distracted me, and I, I don't know what it was. I think it was a sound or something. And I had stopped and turned just as uh, uh, just a, an ungodly thud um, uh, hit, you know, right in front of you know where I was about to walk. And here it was somebody that had you know just jumped out of the building from the upper floor. Definitely would have killed me, you know, instantly. Um, and uh, and that was just uh, kind of like. You know, holy shit, what is happening? You know, and, you know, debris falling on the street. And, you know, you look up and, this, you know, it's just this, this you know, unconscionable sight of, uh, it's a surreal, surreal sight of, you know, people just raining out of the sky, you know. And, uh, you know, you just say, what's going on? And uh, so I was able to, to get with police and fire command you know, our people, again, because they were medically trained or running in trying to help with evacuation and get, you know, injured people out and get them to triage areas, which 
you know, equipment was just starting to arrive. You know, we had we had a firehouse that was on the perimeter of uh, the World Trade Center complex. They they were probably first on the scene from the fire department. Police are constantly there, um, and got with police and fire command. You know, to try to get a sense of what's going on. And I can tell you, you know, we weren't sure that a plane had hit the building. You know, we're we're still in the middle of that early chaos. You know, of hey, what what's actually going on here? You know, and uh, and that's when. We, you know, I heard this, this, just this sound of, uh, you know, projected energy, you know, coming at us. And that's when the second plane, uh, you know, hit uh, Tower 2 from, from the opposite side. And it was like a shotgun blast, all that debris and everything else. I mean, remember, like, Volkswagen-sized pieces of stuff coming at us. And, um, and, and you, know, you know, yelling, hey, run for cover, get cover, get down. And just as this stuff just started raining on the street, you know, later found out that one of the engines had gone right over the top of us and had embedded in the street a couple blocks behind. But um, so when that happened, it it was a it was a it was a, a defining moment in that event because we went from having one you know major catastrophic incident that needed to rally, you know police and fire command together in order to deal with it now to split operations uh which then really caught you know set in motion uh, a lot of confusion and and really stretched resources and um, i remember i had a team of uh, agents with me and we were moving towards um uh, the plaza which was in between the two buildings uh, to try to again help evacuate some people and get them out and and that's when somebody started yelling uh, it was right before we got to up onto the plaza, somebody started yelling, you know, run, run, it's coming down, it's coming down, and had no idea what was going on, but just started hearing this ungodly rumble start. And we could not see the top of the towers from where we are because all the wind was blowing the smoke over the top of us. So, we, were, you know, with the, you know, our ability to see the top of the towers was obstructed. And I remember diving under a, a fire truck uh, and the next thing you know, it's just this horrific rumble and just, you know, vibration and just this, this you know, um, you know, almost undescribable, you know, uh, feeling. And then everything went black and then you couldn't breathe. And uh, um, I remember, you know, crawling out um, from underneath, you know, this truck and over the top of somebody um, and... You know, it, it it just I I had to you know throw my my face into my armpit to to try to breathe because the the air was just so thick with dust and and uh, you, you know you could barely make out anything. Uh, just some small fires that were burning on the street. You know, some headlights that were on, and then eventually it started clearing to the point where you could start making out corners of buildings and so forth. And uh, I started yelling for my for my team, and slowly we you know we started to reconstitute each other, and you know said what just happened? You know, obviously we, you know, some type of collapse had happened, and and then fires were starting starting in the street from, uh, so when the buildings came down, anything that was lighter than air blew out of the buildings, so paper papers, cloth, you name it, and settled onto the ground, and then the jet fuel, uh, the burning jet fuel, started igniting that which then started igniting, you know, gas tanks in the cars that were parked along the streets. And then, you know, so we're, we're and, and you're losing all track of time, 
and and you lose communications uh you know all, all our communications kind of shit the bed you know and it got down you know to the point of what what you could physically see and, and reach uh next thing you know someone's yelling you know uh you know uh, tower one tower one and and i started hearing this like this sound of this metal failing and uh again the, the wind was blowing you know everything over the top of us all i could remember seeing was the was the the big uh spike tower radio tower on top of tower one and and just in a brief break of the clouds and the smoke i just i looked at the you know up at this this needle and the next thing you know i started seeing it leaning and um, at that point, you know, everyone started yelling, run for cover, run for cover, run behind a building. And uh, same thing just happened, you know, that happened before, you know, everything went dark, you know, clouded up with a bunch of dust and smoke. And, uh, you know, eventually started seeing things again, pulled the team back together. And, um, you know, a lot more fire on the street now. It's almost like a wall of fire that surrounded uh, this whole World Trade Center complex as, as, you know, again, more paper and cloth and stuff, you know, came down on, on, on the street, more vehicles on fire. And we, we could see there were some people that were trying to get out from, from deeper inside the, you know, the complex. And we, we, you know, we were within proximity of this old fire engine that was hooked up to a hydrant and I remember, you know, saying to the guys, hey, grab some hoses. I'm going to see if I can get this thing working, you know. And with a little bit of knowledge that I had had from, you know, being a volunteer firefighter uh, back back in the day, I, I got this, you know, the pump working. And we started, you know, uh, knocking down uh, uh, some of the fire so we could create a path for these people to get out. And... Uh, Next thing you know, we, we get alerted to a bunch of people that were seriously injured, you know, in one of the one of the other buildings in the World Trade Center. Get in there, and there was a fireman and a, uh, a complex worker um, that were you know uh, badly injured and traumatized, and some other you know folks that were fortunately still walking wounded. I remember telling my guys, "Hey, you know, we got to find, a, we got to get get these guys out of here. Got to get them some help." And uh, you know, they found an ambulance. Um, from uh, New York Presbyterian Hospital because, you know, up there it's not only the fire department that responds to emergencies, it's also the hospital-based units. And it, it had all its windows blown out of it and but had the keys in the ignition. I don't know where the medics were, but, you know, we loaded these people in onto the litter and onto the bench seat and piled as many as we could into the, into the ambulance. And this is the first time that I had physically uh, touched somebody that day because I've been trying to stay in a command and control position with my, my team. But, you know, two of these, these folks were really in bad, you know, you know, one, one wasn't breathing, another one, you know, was, was, was in bad shape and, uh, got a, a NY, uh, I'm sorry, a Port Authority police officer off duty who came in, you know, uh, you know. I guess he was leaving this. You know, the, his job when all this took place. Hopped up in the front seat. I got a, an, another agent and two with me in the back, and then we start heading down to the battery park area uh, south of the, you know, the Manhattan, where uh, the, uh, the port authority officer said he had heard that they were setting up a triage area, 
and we're driving down, you know, through the street, and I'll never forget all this wind and stuff is blowing right through the ambulance. I mean, because we had no windows, and we get down to the battery, and uh, and next thing you know, you know, people come running up to us, and and it, it was it was just such a contrast from where we had just come from, you know, like 10, 15 blocks up where now we're down into this area that's pristine, it's green, there's color, people are opening up the doors. You know, we're all covered with soot, got blood running down, you know, our faces. We've got these, you know, bad casualties in the ambulance. And 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 as soon as the door opened up and they looked in at us, I mean, you could see the shock on their face. Like, holy cow, what what's going on up there? And uh, so we wound up passing them off to the folks down at, you know, the medical teams down at the battery. And then I tried to get back up to, to the scene because my folks were still up there and I wanted to take the ambulance back up there and they wouldn't let me. So I, I freaking down the road comes this NYPD motor officer and I get stopped right in front of him. And he slams his brakes on. And he says, what are you doing? I said, I tell you what you're going to do. He says, you're going to get me back up there. I got people up there. And, uh, he said, all right, man, hop on. So next thing you know, you know, we're, we're, we're scootering our way up, you know, back into the scene where I reconnected with my guys, uh, you know, lost all track of time, lost about three hours, um, was there when, when our building came down, uh, about five o'clock that night. Um, you know, but, but after about three o'clock, we weren't finding any more people alive, you know, and, uh, and, uh, about five o'clock, our building came down because when Tower One came down, it leaned over into Tower Seven, and and part of Tower One carved out a the front of you know Building Seven. The fire got in there, and because the city had lost so many firefighters and police officers and and their equipment, there was nobody there to fight it. Mm-hmm. So eventually, that fire chewed away at the the base of Tower One and the weight of the building just, you know, brought it down about 5, 5.30 that night. And uh, I wound up, uh, you know, on the scene for a while and then got, you know, my team and I got back to a place where they were, we heard that they were, you know, rallying up our, 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 our field office people, got there and they had set up decon and, you know, um, by then, you know, I'm covered, you know, with all this, you know, you saw, you probably saw the, yeah. <clears throat> the, you know, the, the videos and stuff, you know, um, and, uh, wound up, you know, the only thing that would, you know, the clothes they had were like, you know, XXL, you know, <laughs> you know, so I, I put, you know, I looked like Gumby by the time, you know, I was tying knots in the clothes and all. And, and, uh, I knew I had to get home because, um, I had been reported missing you know, to my family. And that whole time that this is going on, my kids, of course, you know, everyone immediately gets alerted that something's going on. My wife was a, a nurse paramedic and she was working a heart attack victim uh, in somebody's living room and turned and saw what was happening on the TV and almost lost it while she's trying to treat this patient. My kids, you know, of course, you know, a lot of a lot of the you know, kids that they went to school with were, were you know, parents were Wall Streeters and, and, you know, worked in the World Trade Center and the word went out and next thing you know, the kids are running out of school. But my son witnesses this from, you know, the hillside, you know, west of the city. And, uh, you know, I, I get reported as missing and, you know, I knew I had to get home 
and so I walked through the door about midnight that night, and and you know, the look on their faces when they looked at me was like, you know, my eyes were beet red. You know, I had, you know, cuts and scratches all over me, and uh, you know, they just, you know, we just hugged, you know, and just kind of and cried, and and I, I would tell you, Jocko, it was the first time that day that I actually. Um, realized that both buildings had come totally down because where we were positioned, we just didn't have that situational awareness of what what had happened. Um, it wasn't real yet, um, but I watched it on TV, and that's when I, that, you know, right after I got home, and that's the first, you know, kind of acknowledgement or realization that, you know, I had been in the middle of that, probably not close enough to, you know, to, you know, lose my life, though I came close about five times that day, definitely, uh, but far enough out that we, we could still do what we needed to do. And uh, so I wound up being the Ground Zero supervisor uh, for the Secret Service uh, and part of the Joint Task Force that was dealing with the rescue and recovery. And uh, a couple of weeks after that uh, day, oh, well, you so know, does that mean you're going into work the next day? You're going right back down oh, there? Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, I just came home, got about four or five hours sleep. You know, I had gotten a, a, a Suburban from uh, our Newark field office, which was across the river. Uh, I had to get back down there, um, you know, to kind of, uh, you know, understand what happened, protect our, 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 which our office got destroyed, but we had a lot of equipment and so forth that was subsurface down in the garages and so forth. That was very sensitive material. And then uh, next thing you know, um, you know, I was asked to brief the president, um, you know, that Friday, uh, Bush 43, when he came to, to, to Ground Zero. And that's, you know, it's the famous, you know, picture of him standing on top of the pile with a megaphone. Mm-hmm. But I briefed him, you know, what it was like to be on the street that day, you know. And uh, he, I said to him, it was, it's just a matter of whether you stepped right or left, you know often determined whether you lived or died that day. And so, um, you know, going back and forth to ground zero over the next couple of weeks, and, uh, you know, my wife, you know, hits me up and says, hey, you know, something's wrong with Ryan. And my son, you know, is about, like I said, about 14. And uh, he, he's not talking. He's staying up in his room. You know, uh, he looks depressed. So I went up to see him and, and said, you know, what's going on? And he says, look, I, I, I want you to take me down to ground zero. I need to understand what happened. And again, he had witnessed all this from the hillside, you know, west of the city. So I said, well, I don't think that's a good idea, and your mom's not going to go for it. And he said, uh, well, I, look, Dad, I, I just need to know what happened. And But something, you know how your gut talks to you sometimes, mm-hmm. and you can't really put, you know, a lot of, you know, uh, common sense or, 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 or logic, but some told me, all right, I, I needed to do this. So I kind of you know, made a pact with them. Look, I'll take you down there, but if I sense that you're not dealing with this, uh, you, you know, we're out of there, no questions asked, because it, by, by two weeks out, it, it's a pretty nasty place, you know, and, uh, uh, and, and by then they figured out that the air was probably not good to breathe, mm-hmm. you know. So now everybody was wearing respirators and helmets and stuff, which is which was good because that I took them down there and I dressed them up all in all that in a police jacket and we walked 
uh, around for about three and a half hours because the debris field was so extensive, and that's what people just don't understand is when, when, when that happened and those buildings came down, the, the breadth of debris and destruction went blocks beyond the World Trade Center. And so I, you know, told them where things were that day and what I was doing. And even then it was, you know, kind of hard for me to kind of, you know, resolve it in my own head because everything looked so different. And just a tremendous amount of destruction. You know, a lot of people working the pile trying to recover what they could recover, and there wasn't much to recover. Um, it had gone from a rescue into a recovery operation then. And uh, anyway, uh, fast forward, you know, I get pulled back to the White House to take over security operations. Um, so on December 7th was my last day at Ground Zero, and I'll never forget they were pulling an I-beam out of the ground. And as they were pulling it out of the ground, they were hosing it down, and it was steaming like, you know, it, it was, there was still fire, still you know, uh, boiling underground. And uh, I'll never forget that. Came back, you know, started back at the White House, and uh, so is this a new assignment at yeah, this point? Yeah. So your family are up and up, moving, up, yep, and all that. You know, they didn't want to go. You know, job said. You know, you know the deal. Mm-hmm. You know, pack it up. You know, put it in the truck and. And Ryan's what a freshman in high school at this point. Yeah, yeah. So he comes back to uh, you know we we came back to the uh, Annapolis area uh, where we had lived before. We got transferred up to New York, and he finished um, out high school. He was uh, um, uh, he worked for a neighbor of mine that had a diving salvage company. So which I think is was was pretty important. He was, you know, diving year around, you know, in the Chesapeake Bay doing, you know, scut work, you know, scraping the bottoms of, you know, rich people's sailboats and, mm-hmm. you know, changing out zincs and finding stuff that was, you know, but he was doing it year round. Mm-hmm. Um, but he graduated high school and I so said. Was, was he playing sports in high school? What was he doing? Would he uh, like high school? Yeah. So lacrosse was, you know, it's a big lacrosse, yep. you know, so he's doing some lacrosse and, uh, but he, but he liked making money. So, you know, he was, you know, un, you know, in the water a lot. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then he worked as a, with my daughter, who was uh, about a year, year and a half older than him. They worked at a, a restaurant in Annapolis. And so, but I said to him, look, uh, you know, after he graduated, I said, I, I give you a year to figure this out. But, you know, at that point, I'm going to show you the door. <laughs> and, uh, you know, a little tough love, mm-hmm. you know. So he came home about six months, uh, no, about nine months later. and he's, So this is after he graduated high school? After he graduated from high school, we're down in the Annapolis area, you know, having transferred. And he's know, just, once he graduates high school, he's diving, he's yeah. making money, working yeah. in the restaurant. Yep. And, uh, and had been doing that, you know, since we had, you know, moved back while we were still in high school. But now this is, you know, pretty much all he was doing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and souping up his car and doing, you know. So anyway, I, I, you know, he comes home one day and um, he says, uh, I just uh, enlisted in the Navy. And I said, you did what? <laughs> yeah, I enlisted in the Navy. And, uh, oh, by the way, I volunteered for the SEAL program. 
And just then I look over to my wife and she's reaching into the into the knife drawer and all I see is this edged weapon coming out and I'm thinking and she's saying to you know, this is your fault, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, hey, do you have, did he talk to you about it at all beforehand? Not really. Not really. Um, so I said to him, Look, do you know what you're getting yourself into? And uh, he says, yeah, I know what I'm getting myself yeah, into. The correct statement is you don't know what you're getting yeah, yourself yeah, yeah, into. Yeah. But That's where I was going with uh-huh. it. I said, well, I tell you what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have you talk to some, some folks. And so I got a hold of, um, you know, Annapolis is a big town. Mm-hmm. Uh, Naval Academy's there. You know, a lot of, you know, uh, you know uh, frogmen, you yeah. know, roll through there. And, uh, and we had some friends that sponsored, you know, guys that went to the teams, you know, is why they were in the academy, and we had sponsored some. So I hooked them up with some of the guys that had just come out of theater. And I said to them, hey, look, unvarnished, tell him what it's like, and uh, don't sugarcoat it. Mm-hmm. And so he sat down with them, and, you know, <laughs> after they were done, I said, okay, what do you think? He says, 100%. 100%. He went from 999 yeah, to 100%. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's a thing. You think you're dissuading someone when you tell them what it's about. And it's if they already have that mindset, it's just more. But, you know, I asked him, uh, Jocko, so why? Why are you doing this? And he said, because uh, uh, I don't ever want to have happened uh, on 9-11 to ever happen again. He says, I'm going to be part of the solution. And that is a, 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 a response that I've heard from so many of the men and women that, you know, following 9-11, who stopped, you know, stood up on the line, raised their hand, and said they were going to be part of the solution. And, uh, and off he went, you know, to the Navy, you know, to Bud's. How were you feeling when he went to Bud's? Do you feel like he was ready for it? You know, he was running, he was working out. Obviously, you know, he kind of, you know, sensitized himself, you know, the diving, I think, was a real... No, oh, that's definitely what ...was key. Um, but, you know, he got there, and uh, by then, I had uh, retired out of the Secret Service, and I had gotten hooked back into Department of Defense, uh, into the Joint IED Defeat Organization, you know, called the Jaito. Yeah, the Jaito was a huge component of what was going on in the, in the fights overseas, Basically, for people that don't know what that was, it was a place where they were taking all the various IED intelligence and kind of putting it all together and collaborating that intelligence, putting it into forms where we could use it overseas, take that information and, and try and keep guys safe. That's what Jaida was. It was a huge effort because at that time, I want to say about 75% of the casualties in Iraq, I don't know what the number was in Afghanistan, but in Iraq, 75% of the casualties were from from IEDs, roadside bombs primarily. And so there'd been a huge effort to get something, to do something about that. And that effort resulted in the formation of the Jaido, which was just focused on defeating IEDs overseas. And so so what was your what was your job there? So I, I got, you know, it was, it was almost like a black van pulled up, you know, alongside me one day and this giant arm reaches out and it's uh, uh, retired four-star Monty Miggs who, uh, you know, was leading uh, the organization at the time. And, uh, and it, the, the organization had morphed from a task force uh, in the basement of the Pentagon to now a, uh, an ad hoc organization that uh, the president and SecDef had had stood up uh, because you know as you said 
you know, the um, it was a weapon system that the enemy was using against us, yeah. and 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 you know, this was causing, you know, the majority of our our, our men and women that had you know uh, that were coming home, you know, and uh, flag draped coffin, coffins were exposed to the IEDs and coming home with these horrible amputations and just disfiguring wounds. They had to get on top of this. It was paralyzing our our, our, our maneuver on the, on the battlefield. So, um, you know, I said to to Monty Miggs, who passed away a couple of years ago. He was he was a, a big brain uh, guy, uh, gr- great leader. Um, I said, "Why me?" And he says, "I need somebody to help me uh, think about this in a different way." And he says, you know, you come from an organized crime background, you know, and so, you know, at that point they were starting to realize that they had up armored, you know, they had, you know, you know, built robots. They had, you know, worked on all the, the, you know, the hardware stuff that they could and, and, you know, had harvested the, or picked the low hanging fruit. Mm-hmm. And they realized that they had to go after the human factor side of this. And so which meant going after the extremist networks and the bombing networks. So that's when you started seeing a lot of the law enforcement uh, techniques, tactics, and procedures, their TTPs coming into play, you know, where we started enrolling, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, military-age males and other folks that, you know, were detained uh, with biometrics. You know, we started collecting fingerprints. We started collecting... You know, uh, their their photos and other identifying information. Iraq was a little bit easier because of the oil for food program database that they had gave us a lot of information about their population. Afghanistan was a totally different story, and um, so uh, I went into it. Uh, uh, I was you know um, on the ground floor building a platform called the Counter uh, IED Operations and Intelligence uh, Integration Center. We called it the COIC. And it was a, a big brain of data that uh, we had put together in a, a non-disclosed location out in Northern Virginia, uh, with um, a lot of you know active duty uh, and and contractor uh, personnel uh, to staff it. Um, a lot of them came out of special operations, and we started to pull the thread on these uh, networks that were employing IEDs and. We realized that we weren't going to win this at the point of the blast. We needed to get to the left of it, and and that's where, you know, the organized crime piece came out of it, and and the recognition that we had to follow the money. We had to look at their uh, transport networks. We had to look at their supply chain. We had to look at how they were recruiting, you know, what their motivations were in any given part of the battle space. But even more so, we had to recognize that we had to build a relationship with the units that were forward because they were the last tactical mile. They had the best, you know, you know, optic of what uh, was going on or what they were confronting. And so I made the decision that we were going to project people forward. So, you know, 25%, you know, 30% of my workforce uh, went forward uh, to sit in the two and three shops, you know, the intelligence operations shops. And, and what, you know, my model that, you know, kind of kind of broke the parochial way that the doctrinal way that you know military intelligence does stuff was. Um, my folks forward were, and, and I took a page out of JSOC's playbook for this. Um, you have to send your best people forward. 
which means it's going to hurt you mm-hmm. and it's going to make things uncomfortable you know in the rear and and send them forward and give them the power to make decisions and make things happen so my philosophy was we worked the problem from the edge back not from you know the, the rear the rear forward <laughs> yep. you know where everyone was going home at night back into a warm comfortable bed you know getting three hot meals and you know you know some play time uh, the people who you know I sent forward were my scouts out were my sensors were my liaisons with the forward commanders and that's where you know we made the money uh, building those relationships and and feeding them information that they combined with what they were seeing in order to develop you know situational awareness to outline and map you know the the bombing networks which all had their own little style and fingerprint mm-hmm. you know and and um, it was successful very very successful and and so the reason I, I, I say all that is because um, it brought me back to the community which now my son was deployed in these areas mm-hmm. so I had skin in the game and how'd that feel I mean at this time now we're getting it so first your son goes to buds did was he a decent enough runner where he's deep, deep obviously he was good in the water did he have any issues was there any problems was there or did you all right so you know no, nothing's without some adventure I was gonna say and the thing is you either make it or you don't right that's I mean, right <laughs> there's very few people that breeze through seal training so uh, so there's gonna be issues but what how do you do yeah, he, 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 he did well. And, uh, and of course, you hear, you know, you, you know the backstory mm-hmm. after, uh, unfortunately, after he, he passes uh, is when I, I, I hear a lot of the backstory on, on you know, h- how you did and how people thought of him. But uh, he went into training. Uh, he, was, he was the middle-of-the-pack guy. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he, like I said, he, he was pretty um, – uh, situationally aware, you know, he never wanted to be out front. He never wanted to be last. He, he blended into the middle, and uh, he was a smart guy. Um, but he went into Hell Week uh, uh, with a, um, a stress fracture in his leg. Uh, they they were doing log PT. They bobbled the log. He went, you know, out of instinct, went to kind of support it. Came down on his leg. So I remember him calling me right before he started Hell Week, and he says, my, my leg is like, uh, you know. And I said, Do you, he, he says, uh, you gonna get it checked out? And he said, fuck no. <laughs> I said, there's no way I'm going to medical with this. Yeah. Which I wasn't surprised, <laughs> yeah. you know. And uh, I said, okay, look, man, just, you know, ice it the best you can, you know, try to give it as much rest, don't go out and do anything crazy. And uh, so he went into Hell Week with this uh, stress fracture on his leg. Well, through the course of Hell Week, he is compensating, shifting his body weight, mm-hmm. doing whatever. Um, anyway, uh, you know, he started taking some heat from his boat crew. You know, hey, man, you're not carrying your weight. And he's not saying anything. He just tries to adjust and continue. Anyway, they get to Friday, and... Um, and um, you know, they secure Hell Week, and then everybody collapses, you know, and they start, you know, picking them. And, and, I, and Mullen secured their their Hell Week, Admiral Mullen. Okay, yeah. And yeah. so— The chief of naval operations at the time. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. So um, anyway, I forget how many he still had, you know, left uh, in, in his group, 
but they had lost a lot too. And so everyone's getting off, picking themselves off the beach and he, he's not getting up. So, you know, they, they help him up and they help him back to his room. You know, he, he gets cleaned up and, and he's laying in his rack. He's not getting out of his rack. Everybody's, you know, going over for is a challenge. Is this 2005? Was he in Buds in 2005? Uh, six. 2006. Six, okay. seven. Got yeah, up. six, seven. And uh, anyway, they realized something's not right. So they, they wind up, you know, he's got a lot of pain in his back. Uh, they take him over to uh, the Naval Hospital, San Diego, and they get him into you know, a cat scan, pet scan, and his whole back lights up like the Aurora Borealis. He's got stress fractures all the way up his back. So what happened was he's literally, he, he's broken his back in Hell Week as a result of trying to compensate for the injury he went into Hell Week with. And when his teammates found out, they said, holy shit. He says, here we thought he was, you know, dogging it. Mm-hmm. And not realizing that he was going through with this type of injury. They said, holy cow. And he went up before a review board because they were gonna they were gonna toss him because, you know, the assessment after his injury was identified was, you know, he's gotta go on light duty for three months. And so they they had a review board and 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 I remember because I got the backstory on this, you know, they, they were gonna suggest that he, he you know, he leave. And um, because of his injury, and and I forget who the commanding officer was of, of the center at the point uh, came in and said, "So you, so what you're telling me is that this kid, you know, goes into Hell Week, you know, with an injury like that. He goes all the way through Hell Week and comes out with, you know, a broken back, and you want to throw him out? Yeah, not happening. <laughs> yeah." Yeah, I mean, I mean, this kid can need some pain, and and so they all kind of looked at each other and said, you know, you're right. So he rolled back a couple mm-hmm. glasses and then, you know, eventually, you know, got out, went through um, uh, SQT, mm-hmm. did well. Um, immediately went to Sockham, a special operations uh, medic medic course down in, in uh, Fort Bragg. Did well there. Came out of that top of his class. And then, uh, you know, they gave him a, maybe a week to pack his bags, and he was in Iraq. Oh, he went straight to Iraq after that. Yep, yep. And he wasn't there but days before he was in contact. So, what did he go? Did he get to assign to a team, and the team was already on deployment? Yeah, yeah. He was Team Seven. And then he so he rolls straight to Iraq. Now he. You're in full work mode at Jaedo at this time. That's correct. So you you're tracking what's going on. Oh yeah. This is gonna be like next level stress for you. Yeah, I, I had to discipline myself not to read their their daily reports. Uh-huh. You know, though my guys were keeping an eye on it. I had a special operations, uh, you know, um, uh, team uh, in my center that that supported, you know. Um, uh, both white and black soft. Um, so, you know, they would, you know, keep an eye on mm-hmm. what he was doing. But um, even more so, um, I, I was able to broker uh, on the pre-deployment cycle uh, the teams to come through the COIC. Okay. So they could understand what we could do for them. And because it's all about relationships. 
So once you understand, you know, what's available uh, at your fingertips uh, or, or simply by, you know, a phone call, then that, you know, potentially can give you a lot more capability that you can lean on. Mm-hmm. And so they would come through, you know, the platoons would come through, interact with the operators, the analysts. And that's, a, that's another uh, dynamic that was non-traditional is that I had uh, all my operators um, sitting with my intel analysts, sitting with my te- technologists because we were bending pipe mm-hmm. while, while this was all going on. And then in the second bench, I had my trainers. So as I rotated people forward to be with the units for six months, in some cases a year, and some of these unit commanders didn't want to leave their, let my people go uh, because they had become so dependent on, on that relationship and, and the information that you know, we were uh, you know, exchanging with them. But when they came back, I immediately put them into the training cell so that they can industrialize the latest, greatest lessons learned that they were bringing back from the forward edge and then rotate them back into the support cell with the operators and, and the analysts. Mm-hmm. So that rotation really proved to be, you know, I think, um, you know, the secret sauce that, you know, uh, enabled our success in our ability to support the units forward. But yet my son's unit being one of them. So he goes on that first deployment without even doing a workup, rolls right over there, probably because he's a medic and he shows up at the team, they're on deployment, so he just rolls over, starts helping out, probably gets thrown into a platoon, starts supporting them. And is he was he over there for the full deployment? Was it like a six-month deployment for him? Or yeah. Was he, okay. And he gets home. What, what, what's your assessment after he gets done with his first deployment? How's he doing? You, you know, he, he had you know broken his cherry, uh, you know, was coming home with a good rep. Uh, he was jazzed up. He loved, loved, you know, being in the teams. Uh, loved his platoon. Uh, they were tight. Uh, he was loyal to a fault to, to his boys. And uh, so that first pump, you know, in, into Iraq out in Al Ambar was, uh, you know, was was really formative for him. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was looking forward to get back, back, you know, back in the fight. So and that's what he does, rolls back into a workup, still at Team 7, goes through a workup. Uh, are you getting feedback from him as he's going through a workup and stuff? Yeah, you, you know, they're, do, they're doing, you know, pretty much what they do in the workups, you know, heavy training. Mm-hmm. Um, Actually, I was running his workup, you know. I was, the, I was the trade at commander at that time, and I was 100% putting him through all of his training. So whatever, uh, whatever he said about it was a reflection of me. Yeah, And yeah. the training was pretty rough at the time. So. Yeah, I, I mean, he, 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 but you know, he, he was all about training. Yeah, you know, and uh, I think they had a J, couple J sets uh, mixed in there between his, you know, first, second, third. You know, he went to Honduras one time to work maritime ops, hmm. and then went into Lebanon, which was a real interesting, hmm. um, you know, kind of hornet's nest of of um, activity. Yeah, for sure. You know, with uh, Hezbollah there, um, but. You know, he he loved the training. He had a high standard. Um, I would say if there if there were there was a fault that if you know uh, he had little tolerance for incompetence or or you know people not doing their job, uh, and that was no reflection on his teammates. It was like when he had to deal with the rest of the Navy or had to deal with you know other components that you know would not you know live up to his standard. Mm-hmm. I would say that that was 
part of his personality. But he was loyal to the fault to his to his teammates. And and you know his best friend was an officer. Um, and you know he, he had a lot of really good close friends, good 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 troopers. And then where was his next deployment to? Did he go back to Iraq again? Yeah, or? he went back to support the task force, um, uh, you know, the Tier 1 task force, mm-hmm. uh, Army task force, uh, up north in an HVI, you know, uh, hunting mission, mm-hmm. and, and really got a different perspective uh, up there. That's where he uh, got his, um, you know, they actually put him in, you know, this Tier 1 uh uh, army unit put him in for his bronze star up there because of his you know his actions but um it was a different side I, and that's when i started seeing some changes because they got mixed up into some stuff up there mm-hmm. um some of the, the torture chambers and so forth that they came upon and, and some of the other you know uh sites of um you know i think uh it goes to some of the moral injury mm-hmm. challenges that you know our folks uh wrestle with mm-hmm. you know coming out of uh experiences like that so when you say you notice so he comes back from that deployment obviously if you're working with a tier one element their op tempo is very very high and he comes home from that deployment and this is maybe the first time looking back you start to assess that he was going through something that was a little bit uh, affecting him mentally yeah but not not really you know in in a sense that anything was sticking out Mm -hmm. but i could see you know there was changes he's maturing you know he you know, very serious. Um, you know, we we would talk about some things, but not everything. You know, uh, because he, like I said, he was very loyal to to his teammates, and obviously, so there's some things that he just wasn't going to talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, through through that experience, um, he, uh, w- which I I would assess was a good experience. Um, word came down that they they needed a uh, special operations corpsman. In Afghanistan, uh, they had, I guess somebody got hurt, mm-hmm. and they needed an experienced medic over there. So um, they put out a call for, you know, anybody interested, and he immediately popped up and says, I'll go. So he finishes his, his second pump in um, Iraq um, and comes home for a couple of weeks, resets his kit, and then uh, heads out the door for uh, uh, gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, where, you know, he's you know now an augmentee to to another task force, and um, and they're seeing a lot of action. Um, he uh, winds up, you know, uh, you know operating at a different altitude, high altitude. He winds up getting uh, high altitude sickness on one hop. Um, you know, gets banged up a little bit, but you know, again. You know, likes the experience. You know, he's he's in with a good team element, um, and then comes home from that. So he's almost been deployed a year now, mm-hmm. which is kind of a significant, uh, I, I guess, piece of this. You know, that that year long deployment where you get no reset, uh, I think, is is significant, especially you know within a special operations high high op tempo environment. Um, but you know, when he came back off of that, that's when I started perceiving some you know signs that things are definitely changing what, what are some of the signs I uh, started complaining he couldn't sleep and that uh, when he did get to sleep he was having some nightmares uh, bouts of anxiety uh, he became short fused uh, stopped smiling 
a lot, you know, because he was kind of a, a jokester. Mm-hmm. He was one of these guys that was very quiet, but when he said something, you know, people, it was funny. People, it was funny. <laughs> you know, they, people paid attention. Um, and uh, he had this a great ability to abstract, you know, think second, third order, you know, steps ahead. You know, so he, he was, you know, kind of made a name for himself in planning uh, operations and so forth. But uh, after that third deployment, he, um, like I said, was wrestling with some of these issues, but it was kind of a low, mm-hmm. kind of like. And you're only seeing him, so you're you're state you living in Virginia or whatever Maryland, Maryland, and he's stationed out on the West Coast. Right. So you're not you're talking to him, but you're not seeing him that often. That's right, it's just not possible. That's right. So you know, he's got a new family now. Mm-hmm. You know, the the family that he grew up with. You know, that's transitioned yep. to his. That's the secondary family. Yeah, his teammates, which <laughs> yeah. he's, he's gotten really close. He's been, you know, he's spilled blood with them. So, um, but he winds up going to sniper school, you know, comes out the top of his class in sniper school. It was in Indiana uh, for, for that, you know, period of training. And then, you know, again, back into another workup. Uh, this time he goes into um, uh, Hellman Province. Uh, goes into a, you know, uh, gets assigned to a wild outpost uh, up above, north of, uh, of uh, Bastion mm-hmm. um, and uh, Lashkar Gah up towards the uh, Kajaki Dam. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's, uh, it's like a Fort Apache scenario. You know, they're, you know, they're taking, you know, incoming rounds all the time and constantly locking up with the enemy. But, you know, he's got now the, the uh, you know, SEAL sniper mm-hmm. designation. Um, they wind up, I remember him calling me one night, they, you know, he just had to talk to somebody. They had just come back from an op, and he, they said uh, he was rattled. And he was rattled because uh, it was a near helicopter, um, col- you know, uh, collision. That they, you know, uh, Marine 53s were inserting them, and, were getting brownouts as they were, were coming in for approach and then would pull up and then, you know, they, they almost clapped together and then they would circle around and, and it wasn't until like the third attempt on insertion into this hot zone that uh, they finally, you know, just ran off the back ramp. And then um, he said it was just, you know, really, you know, unnerving. Everybody was shaken, shaken up and they had to, you know, quickly get their bearings again to get, you know, to lock into the op, which then turned into a firefight because now, you know, all the elements of surprise is gone and uh, and then wound up. So what, that, what are you telling your son after he's, you know, you can t- you can hear it in his voice, like you you know the feeling of like oh, yeah. terrible helicopter scenarios where you're like, there's no way we're going to make it out of this and then you somehow make it. What are, you, what are you telling him? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't your time. It wasn't your time, and uh, you know, you know, you, you gotta you gotta try to turn that you know around you know into a strength. You know, try to you know sit down with your boys and talk about this. And you know, again, you know, you know when you you go into these jobs, shit happens. You know, to to uh, quote that uh, famous philosopher uh, Forrest Gump, um, and. But the only way you can deal with it is really kind of letting it out. And, you know, it's not weakness. It's just you've got to process it. Otherwise, it's, it's going to chase you. 
Well, he wound up having another bad helicopter experience. Again, same with uh, marine aviation. Not not to throw down on marine aviation, but you know, I think that part of the the country had its unique challenges. Mm-hmm. You know, high dust environment and so forth, and and uh, old aircraft and 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 folks maybe not as familiar with you know um, operating with special operations and not like you know you know the the type of experience that you know you get with the 160th mm-hmm. you know um and uh night stalkers but anyway it is what it is and uh but talking to them telling them hey look you know i i've had my own close experience you know close in experience with helicopters you know they're mechanical shit breaks you know you put all your trust on your pilots and uh you know you're there for the ride. Yeah, that uh, vulnerability, you know, whenever I talk to people about, you know, being a pilot, being a tanker, being anything, I liked more than anything just being on my feet in the ground. Like, to me, yeah. give me me and my platoon, and I feel a thousand times safer than when I'm riding in a Humvee, riding in a Bradley, riding in, in a aircraft of any kind. So, yeah, when you have to do that over and over again, uh, it's one of those things. And you don't, it's also one of those situations where there's very little you can do to control it. And, you know, even when we have, when, when it's my Humvees and I'm picking the route and I can gather the intel and I can use the jammers and I can get all this stuff to kind of mitigate as much as possible, you're at least feeling that you've, you've, you've controlled what you can control. Man, when you get on board into a Bradley, into a, into a helicopter, there's a lot of there's a lot of things going on. I mean, like you said, there's mechanical. I mean, those things just crash sometimes, and that happens. So yeah, if you start to think about that, see, my gig was I don't think about that. Like, there's some stuff I can't control. I don't focus on it at all. That's right. I'm just hey, I'm getting this bird. These Marines, these Army, these Air Force pilots, they're they're going to do this as good as anybody can do it, and we're going to rock and roll. I, that's the best I could do. That's what I figured out for me when I'm relying on, I mean, sitting in the back of a Bradley driving down a street that's had nine IEDs in the past 48 hours on it, that's not a good feeling. <laughs> and and if you think about that, it, it, it's gonna really, it's really gonna rough you up mentally. For me, it was always like, cool. Yep, these guys know what they're doing. We're gonna rock and roll. And if it's time, it's time. But I'm feeling good tonight. I'm feeling lucky because that's how I always feel. Let's go. When you let that start to creep into your head, it, it definitely, I don't know, I wouldn't know how to deal with that. Like if I, if you focus on what can go wrong, cause how many, how many parts are there in a helicopter? How many parts are there in a, in aircraft that you're about to get into and how old is that aircraft? And when was the last, you know, what was the, what was the maintenance dude thinking about when he was doing the maintenance on this piece that everything, you start going down that thought process it could get pretty ugly pretty quick so i always just did my best to this is what i'm thinking about i'm thinking about what i can control that's what we're doing that's what i'm focused on that's what i tried to get my guys focused on but it's not always easy to do that it's it's actually not very hard to get wrapped into those negative thoughts and especially you have a close call you realize that we survived this by a millimeter and that it's very hard to not focus on that yeah check i mean checking all that i mean 
Yeah, and that's the same with me. I mean, I, I, I only focus on what, what I think can, I can influence and control. It's kind of the advice I gave Ryan. You know, it's your time, it's your time. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, you don't get visibility if, you know, that, you know, in a lot of cases. Yep. Um, I can remember, you know, if you talk about 53s, you know, the Jolly Green, you know, you get on board and, you know, freaking hydraulic fluids dripping mm-hmm. all over the place. And, you know, you point it out to the crew chief. Hey, man, you got, you got, there's a leak here. You got hydraulic fluid. He, you know, without even, you know, like batting an eye, he says, well, just let me know when it stops dripping because then we got problems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the way it is. So, so that was his last deployment. It was. He's in Afghanistan. And, you know, I was talking to uh, my friends, some of my friends in the teams and some of the guys that had worked directly with Ryan. And just, you know, because I didn't, I didn't remember Ryan from when I put him through training because I put a lot of guys through training. And, but I was just talking to, you know, hey, what, what, what do you remember? And, you know, the people that worked with him his first two, three platoons was like, freaking stud, team guy you want. Great new guy, then a great Juan Cruz one. Like, just was just on the path to kind of be just the awesome team guy. Um, what are you seeing? So now, by the time he comes home from this fourth deployment, what what are you noticing? What are you seeing that's different? So he's becoming a little bit more vocal in uh, his inability to sleep. Which, you know, I mean, we don't get a good night's sleep. You mm-hmm. feel like crap the next morning, but he's not getting any sleep. And then, you know, so he's, you know, I think going to, you know, he's drinking more, you know, trying to get to sleep. Mm-hmm. He's, you know, wrestling with some pain, um, whether it's, you know, residual pain from, you know, training or, or just, you know, getting, you know, you know rock too much in combat, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so the alcohol is becoming an issue. Do you know that at the time? I sensed it. I sensed it. I mean, he was pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. He was saying, you know, hey, I'm drinking more and I, I don't want to. But, um, you know, I, I got to try to get to sleep. And then um, then he said when I would get to sleep, I'd have these nightmares. And I know that he had one shooting that um, involved a kid, um, you know, early teens you know mm-hmm. I think at 12 I think it was a legitimate shoot I, I know it was uh, from what you know, they said but it bothered them mm-hmm. uh, I think the kid had a weapon but still you know it's, it's part of that moral injury mm-hmm. and you know and here's the other thing you know that I've seen with you know that's specific to the medics is that you know one side of your brain is you know you're a shooter and the other side you've got you know, you're wired to, to help people, mm-hmm. you know, and sometimes, you know, I, I think that that creates a, you know, kind of a, a tension, yeah. you know, an emotional tension. Yeah. The other thing is you don't always have the capability to save people. That's right. Um, you're exactly right. You know, like, so, so when you can't, and I definitely saw this with some of my medics, it was like some of my corpsmen was, you see that. Look, they're working on guys that can't be saved. Can't, they can't right. be saved, but it doesn't matter that they can't be saved. It doesn't matter that if you put them on the with those wounds on the with the best surgeon in the world at Johns Hopkins, that no one can save 
an individual, but they still feel like they they should have been able to help more. Yeah. So that's I think is part of it too. No, I, you're exactly right, and I think that they you know um, you know carry an increased burden, um, and it goes back to how do you deal with this stuff, and uh, especially when you lose a teammate. Um, you know, it's it's hard to resolve. You know, is he coming home on leave back to the East Coast? You know, occasionally, but you know, his home is out here. Mm-hmm. You know, we would come out to visit him uh, when he would come back. You know, he it almost if what I saw is that he felt more comfortable being deployed than he did being back in garrison. Mm-hmm. He liked he liked being deployed. He liked operating. He didn't like. You know, what he would, I think, characterize as the nonsense that, you know, occurs a lot yep. when you're when you're home. And, and then I think also that, you know, occasionally you would say people just don't understand what we've been through or what we've done. So I think that is, is true in the way our society uh, just doesn't understand our warriors, certainly the ones that have served, you know, the last 20 plus years of, of conflict. Uh, which is part of the challenge I think we have and and uh, with our you know uh, warrior and veteran community but um, yeah he started uh, at that point you know coming off that last deployment he was asked to uh, you know become the uh, lead petty officer in Salk uh, mm-hmm. special operations urban combat training as you know mm-hmm. is really you know an important phase of workup before the platoons you know lift and shift to combat theater and I think he was asked to to do that because of his experience and uh, so and he took that very seriously I mean he you know uh, was very much into the redesigning lesson plans and you know wanted to replicate because he would call home and ask me about different things replicate the uh, the combat environment you know as closely as possible and and really you know create a level of stress and 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 performance expectation that would you know serve the the units that were going and and he was pretty i think straightforward in his critiques of you know how different groups you know performed and but at the same time you know he felt that he had to be there right on top of you know uh these evolutions so when they would breach a door when they would come in and have a dynamic entry um, he, he was right there absorbing all that. Yeah. Um, you know how many crashes get thrown? Like if he's at Salk and you're working Salk and you're crashing rooms and they, they're not just crashes, so the flash crash grenades for people that don't know, but then we have like fake grenades, like blue body, we call them blue body, but they're, they just have a blasting cap in them. But y- you might, you might be in a room in, you might get, you might absorb 15 crashes on one run. You know what I mean? Like there is a lot of, and this is after the breach. So the breach goes, and then people are crashing rooms. They're throwing blue bodies. By the way, you got a, a, a Mark 48 machine gun inside of a room that's six by six shooting out of a window, and you happen to be in there when this is going on. There's a lot of, of concussive forces that you're experiencing. And so just giving some people, if that's what he's doing, working the the special operations urban combat block of training that's what it is it's just explosion after explosion after explosion all the time and when you do that you know when you're going when you're in a platoon 
you do that block of training, but then you go to spec recon. What are you doing on spec recon? You're quiet in the woods for two weeks, right? Then you go on combat swimmer. What are you doing in combat swimmer? You're under the water for three weeks. Then you go to Marops. What are you doing? You're in a boat. So you're if you're in a workup, you're not getting exposed over and over and over again. When you're in training cell and that's what you're teaching, you're just cycling platoons through that over and over and over again. So if you're in land warfare, you're you know you're eating rockets all the time. If you're in South, you're eating crashes and and explosive breaches and same thing with CQC. You're eating those things. So definitely the exposure that he's getting at this point is very high. Yeah, and and when he went to sniper school, you know they're shooting the fifty cal, mm-hmm. and so he would come out with you know for instance shooting a fifty cal where they would just shoot endless rounds and and, and say that you know blood was pouring out of his nose, mm-hmm. his ears were ringing. Uh, he come off uh, the South you know, you know, workups and, you know, he'd have to lay, you know, they go out to the island and, you know, have a heavy day of uh, weapons and, and, you know, breaching and dynamic entries. He'd come back to his room. He said he'd have to lay down for like five, six hours on the floor just, you know, because his head was hurting so much. And then uh, started complaining about some vision problems and hearing, but, it got to a point where so he, he recognized he needed to go get some help. So he, you know, went to medical and, and you know, they immediately pulled out the prescription pad and wrote him, you know, a prescription for sleep medication. And then they wrote him another prescription for, you know, anxiety. And so he started, you know, taking that, but it really wasn't helping. And together with the alcohol really didn't make a good combina- combination, but he was still doing his job. He was getting out there. He was taking a serious... And then, you know, he had uh, he had an incident where he uh, hit his head, you know, uh, alcohol-related incident, and came out of that. Um, you know, that was I think the first, you know, um, incident or event that we really started to understand that something wasn't right. So he like fell down drunk type thing? Yeah, kind of, I, I don't know where they were. They were in Spain on, on a, uh, they were um, going over, I think to Iraq uh, to change out um, a team mm-hmm. and he was going on the trip. Mm-hmm. And actually it was his re-enlistment. Uh, he was going out to, yeah. he was gonna re-enlist in theater and wound up you know, this is like within days of them putting them on this medication, um, and he wasn't sleeping. Um, I think the combination of it, he, he you know, rolled back uh, and, and, you know, hit his head and was unconscious. And so, you know, like most of the, you know, the, the dudes, you know, they get up, they shake it off, and um, he hops back on the plane, goes into Iraq, and things aren't right that, you know, the, the folks that are on the trip with him said that he's just not right. Mm-hmm. And they come back out of Iraq and, and they wound up having to go to launch stool, um, you know, because, you know, while he was at attitude, he had some type of crisis. Um, and so they evaluate him, you know, in Germany and realize that, you know, uh, something's happened, but they don't know what it is. So the, crisis that he added out to this is like he passed out this is like what what, what was the situation i guess there was some type of he, something that that he felt he it was like an out-of-body experience where he felt like he was dying mm-hmm. and and that so some kind of like maybe panic attack type panic scenario. attack right something that wasn't you know uh he wasn't thinking right he wasn't speaking right so whether 
change in altitude, maybe had some type of, you know, bleed or insult going on in the head from, you know, obviously having this concussive event, you know, a number of days before, uh, you know, going to altitude was having some type of an effect, uh, but they really couldn't put their finger on it mm-hmm. when he got to Germany. So they wound up, you know, getting him on a, a civilian flight back to uh, the West Coast where, you know, he was reevaluated again and nobody could really put their finger on it. There's there's something f- just to give people some perspective here in the teams and I can really only speak to the teams but I also know that the army and the marine corps has an element of this as well but from growing up in the teams there's an element of everything that we're saying right now that I'm sure people are like oh my gosh this is like be red alert you know this is a huge red flag but in the seal teams for someone to be drinking, for someone to be, you know, acting a little bit crazy. For these are things that, for lack of a better word, in many cases, are normal. It is normal yeah. for a guy or for three guys to show up on a Monday morning. One guy's got a black eye. Another guy's they're still hungover. Maybe they're still a little bit drunk. Hey, guys, get your shit together. Like, I'm not saying it's good, but I'm telling you, it's the reality. When you this is this is. These men are not uh, Boy Scouts. These are guys with a high testosterone level. These are guys that are taking, have a very risky job. These are guys that seek combat. That's who they are. And so the, the, the types of things that we're talking about, these aren't huge, like maybe if you worked at an accounting firm and Fred comes into work on Monday and he's got a black eye and he's really hung over, you might be thinking, oh my gosh, and if he does that next weekend, you're like, oh, we got a problem here. In the SEAL teams, that's a 23-year-old dude that's been on multiple deployments, and I'm just saying it's not such a red flag for, for, for a normal SEAL. And there's, th- there's many, many SEALs that that's what they did, and they did it from age 22 to age 29, and then they all of a sudden they got married and they had a family. They just kind of carried on and everything goes normal, right? They, they, my, myself included, I was a wild freaking 23-year-old. I was a wild 25-year-old. I was a wild 21-year-old. I was drinking. I was getting in fights. We were all, that's what we were doing. That's what we were doing. And then, you know, get a little bit older. All of a sudden, you're, you know, you're, get a little bit of responsibility. And then you end up getting married. And then you have kids. And you kind of just grow. And, and that, that is a fairly normal progression for a SEAL, at least back in the day. There's actually less of it now, I believe. But... I just want to give that kind of set that dat, data point for people to think, oh my gosh, you got a guy that says he can't sleep. Go talk to a SEAL platoon. The guy's like, oh yeah, I didn't sleep last night. By the way, I didn't sleep last night because I went out to a party. I met a girl. I did this. We took, got lost in an Uber, came home, couldn't find my ID, and I, and I had to jump over the fence. This is a normal story. So I just want to set that so people aren't thinking, oh, these are huge like why didn't why didn't everybody focus on this immediately? It's because it's fairly, for lack of a better word, normal. Yeah, right? yeah, I would agree. You know, and again, this goes back to what I said earlier: is that you know they come back to a society or to an environment that you know it, it, you know they don't understand what these warriors have been through, and so in some cases, like you know, these warriors, you know there's this expectation that you know they come home that 
everything's going to be normal. You know, they, you know, they walk in the house and it's going to be the way they left it, you know, six months ago or a year ago. And that, um, you know, they're going to behave, you know, just like everybody else. And that's not the case. I mean, you can't create this level of warrior and, and put the level and put the expectation on them that this nation does to go do, you know, some of its toughest, you know, tasks yeah. and not, you know, it's at a consequence. And, you know, to your point, this is, this is, you know, it may might appear to be abnormal to everybody else, but this is kind of like the, yeah. the normal for, for this cadre of, of yeah. special operator. Yeah. And, and it's not, it's a normal course that eventually kind of levels out and becomes, again, I was talking to one of my buddies yesterday about Ryan and, you know, we were, we were both older and so when the war is going on, guess what I was doing when I came home from combat? I had a wife and three kids and then four kids. I, my kids didn't care. You know, they weren't like, hey, wait, you know, what, what have you been through? No, I had to go home and be a dad. And it kind of forced it kind of forces you to like get it. It, it forces you to correct your behavior and get, you know, there there's no. Hey, you're you're now 35 years old. You got three kids at home and a wife. The kids going. They want to go to the you know wrestling tournament that you got to go and spend twelve hours there. You can't be freaking drunk, Hunter. Well, you can be, but it's not going to be as conducive. You have a there's a bigger tendency for you to get forced back into sort of a better behavior pattern than when you're single. Because when you're single and you come home, well, who, what are you going to do? You can go out with your friends. What are you and your friends going to do? You're going to go out drinking. What are you going to do? You're going to go out drinking. You're going to find some girls. We're going to get into fights. We're going to we're going to do what a 23, 24, 25 year old does. And again, it's not a red flag. You got to pay attention to it. But I, I'm just trying to point that out. What the same thing you're saying? It's just a little bit. I know it sounds crazy, but it's not totally abnormal. It is a fairly normal behavior. It's not a. It's it's what is this? What does a 23 year old seal do when he gets home from a trip on a Friday? Goes out. Has some beers with his friends, meets some girls, stays out all night. What does he do the next day? Wakes up early because he still told his friends he'd be there at the gym to work out. So he only got three hours of sleep, four hours of sleep. By the way, couldn't sleep that great anyways, probably because he drank too much. Like there's all these things that just kind of slowly add up. And if they don't get, they they can kind of self-correct, but sometimes they don't. Yep. Exactly right. I mean, um, so, you know, it's, it's, I think... You know, how do they deal with that? And what's acceptable and what's not? And I think that part of the challenge here, you know, goes e- even within our medical community is they didn't have an understanding of that. Yeah. <clears throat> so, you know, it kind of creates this perfect storm. Um, you know, and I, and I think a point that you made that's important to understand is that there's, there's, there is a different dynamic for those that have families and have other responsibilities than those who are coming out, you know, who are single. Yep. And, and there's, you know, the you know, different, you know, responsibility or accountability. It's nothing like a wife to, to pull you back, you know, on that center line. Nope. You know? Yeah. 90% divorce rate in the SEAL teams. But if you're not getting divorced, guess what you're doing? You're freaking mowing the lawn and you're, you know, taking care of the kids right. on the weekend that you're home. Yeah. And, and, and kids can be, you know, pretty humbling, you know, they, 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 they can, they can, they'll call you out in a minute, you know, they'll, they'll hold you to task. Um, but 
so we started seeing these changes and he went to get help but um, after that concussion incident and that trip in and out of Iraq um, then we started looking at NICO the National Intrepid Center of Excellence at uh, uh, Walter Reed Bethesda to get him in to to get because that's when he started talking about I think something's wrong with my head Mm -hmm. and you know especially after having some of these uh, experiences with severe headaches, nosebleeds, um, these you know, changes in his vision, ringing in the ears, all that. Um, so he calls me up and says, hey, look, I'm trying to get to, to NICO, but they're not letting me go. And I said, what do you mean they're not letting you go? Well, you know, I'm not sure that they believe in what NICO's doing. And I said, is that right? So at that point, you know, I, I'm the senate sergeant at arms so you know i pick up the phone Mm -hmm. and uh, within a couple hours he's got a a slot at nico and the nico so just so people understand so nico is a program where is it in virginia or it's it's no it's it's in maryland it's at uh bethesda maryland it's the old uh bethesda naval hospital that now is a, a joint service you know national medical center so it takes guys that have been in combat that have been exposed to combat, and it does, it's it's like, what is it, about 30 days. It's like a month long, and you right. go there, and it's like a real comprehensive assessment of, you know, assessment of blood work, uh, scans, and then they're putting you in art therapy, and uh, yoga, and good, clean diet. They're doing all these things to try and get guys sort of Reset and back on a good path. I've 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 heard uh, some guys that went have just like loved it. Said it was great. Helped them so much. Um, other guys, nope, didn't buy into it. Type thing. So I think a little bit of it is what what your take on it is going to be. And there's also this: human beings are not all the same at all. And I I, I usually when I talk about this type of stuff, I talk about Muhammad Ali and George Foreman. Muhammad Ali, you know, well, George Foreman, they, they're both heavyweight fighters. They're both heavyweight champions. They're both had a long career. George Foreman, you, you see George Foreman today, he's totally normal, intact, mentally talks, you know, he's, he's fine. He suffered how many, God knows how many thousands of concussions he took in his career. He's fine. Muhammad Ali, not fine. You know, he had something called pugilistic disease, which is something that some boxers get. S- Freddie Roach, same thing. Freddie Roach is a fighter. How does he end up? He ends up, you know, he's got that pugilistic disease where you've taken a bunch of concussions, but not every boxer gets it. Why is that? Well, it's because human beings are different. And so, so there's some human beings that might not be impacted by certain uh protocols and some that might be both on the healing side and on the the negative impact side so it's very difficult to form a pattern off of something like blast injuries when there's a whole spectrum of people and how they're going to react to it people have different reactions to these things and and we don't understand those things so as we're sending guys out you know someone might be looking at ryan thinking well he's quote only done four deployments and you think well first of all what do those deployments consist of then what was he doing when he was working at trade at and then what is his what is his uh biological 
reactants to this stuff because everybody's different. So these are the kind of things that are coming into play as we start looking at what what guys are going through. Yeah, I couldn't say it better. You're exactly right. Everybody's different. They're wired different. You know, genetics comes into play. You know, it's just like, you know, you could put, you know, five folks in a line, you know, and take the same knife and cut them in the same place. And they're all five of them are going to heal differently. You know, some will get an infection. Some will heal within a couple of days. Others will take two weeks to heal. I mean, and that's that's part of the reality. And this is, you know, part of the, you know, what we're trying to understand, um, you know, as we, we deal with some of these challenges. But I couldn't have said it better. How worried were you when, you know, w- when he's getting sent to NICO? How worried are you from what you could tell from talking to him? How worried were you? Yeah, I, I'm, by then, my... my 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 all my antennas are, are up you know i i realize something's wrong you know we're we're seeing changes in him that are not him and um and coming out of nico it was interesting um they you know put him through all the the heavy uh, imaging studies you know pet scan cat scan regular x-ray you know spect scans you know they 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 looked at him from you know you know tooth to tail blood work you know, they could see cognitive changes in him. There were definitely cognitive changes in him. He had memory issues. He had vision changes. He had, you know, ringing in the ears. He had balance issues. Um, they started his testosterone uh, was in the tank, which are you know the case with a lot of uh, operators. And his cortisol levels, which is your overdrive, was off the charts. And and you know we see operators get stuck. You know at 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 both ends of this and and then you you look at sleep which has you know you know the very strong influence in the calculus of all this um you know the quality of sleep that they get and 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 you mentioned you know eating how do they eat you know because you are what you eat you know so if you're putting junk in your body then your body's going to react to that as opposed to you know the right nutrients and so forth exercise is another piece but then it goes back to your head you know um you know, you're, you're, you know, that brain housing group is your command and control center for what goes on in your body. And if it's not in a good place, then that makes this all, you know, uh, that more difficult. You know, whether we're talking about mental health, whether we're talking about the biophysiology uh, of the brain, uh, neurophysiology, uh, all that comes in balance. Um, you know, so if you're seeing hormonal changes, uh, something's not right. If you're seeing other chemical changes in the brain, something's not right. If you're seeing, you know, cognitive dysfunction um, or or irregularities, something's not right. So there there are signals that are being, you know, transmitted, uh, but we weren't picking up on them because in some cases we didn't know what we didn't know. You know, the science had not caught up with this, and part of the problem that that I see as 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 I've assessed this is that we first introduced high explosives to the battlefield back in World War I. And ever since then, you know, we have been calling, you know, this condition um, you know, that comes off the battlefield, you know, the soldier's heart. You know, we call it, mm-hmm. you know, um, battlefield psychosis. You know, we call it, you know, we put all these different names on it. Uh, and, and now we call it, post-traumatic stress and 
you know, so we really haven't advanced the ball very much on understanding what, you know, happens on the battlefield and why some people come off the battlefield with certain conditions. But what has happened uh, across the board is that it has largely defaulted all towards a psychiatric diagnosis, you know, mental health, um, where things are scored against the DSM-5 diagnostic registry. And in some cases, because that's how people get reimbursed. You know, they got to come up with a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting in Ryan's case that they could never put them, their finger on anything that was happening to them. And, and you know, as you said in the introduction, you know, he just became a walking experiment. You know, they were trying this drug, that drug. And in some cases, you know, these drugs, though they have some rescue effect, uh, are not meant to be long-term solutions for what folks are dealing with. Uh, but unfortunately, they get lost, you know, in the mix, and they're on these drugs for years at a time. And then when they realize that they shouldn't be on these drugs, it's harder coming off the drugs than it is being on the drugs. And we saw an abrupt change of him coming out of NICO. He was put on a drug called Effexor, which was a very high-end mood stabilizer. And overnight, we saw a kid who was trying to fly out of the storm suddenly just heal over and, and nosedive. And um, when he came back to the West Coast after finishing NICO um, with a pretty significant write-up, but absent any findings in his brain as far as you know, brain damage or anything, they didn't see anything. Comes back to the West Coast, and you know, you know, you kind of alluded to this that you know they they tried to teach you that you know they, first of all they tried to tell you what is going on to give you a sense of what may be causing some of the, the changes and, and some explanation. And then they give you some tools on how to deal with it. But then you come back into an environment where, you know, it's not exactly conducive for following through on that stuff mm-hmm. because you're back into a deployment cycle. You've got other responsibilities. You know, you don't always get a solid eight hours sleep. And, and you know, as we are learning now with circadian rhythm, you know, it, you know they, they say you should go to sleep at the same time every night. You should have a routine. Yeah, come on. You know, here I am as a firefighter. You know, tell me how that works, mm-hmm. you know. And then um, you come back to a, a medical enterprise that's not – doesn't exactly understand what NICO's doing. So, in you know, they – you know, their opinion is, hey, they're off the reservation. They're gone rogue. And I'm not doing anything that they're recommending. And that's what he came back to. He came back to, you know, a medical enterprise uh, that didn't understand, you know, um, the challenges that these warriors have, have, have been through or going through, didn't understand the, the NICO assessments. And so basically openly disregarded any recommendations. And then on top of that, you've got the operational realities of, of being with the teams. So though NICO was a good experience, uh, the impact in NICO was minimal. And so he comes back and he starts to realize his own self-assessment that he's got to do something about you know the alcohol. But he says, look, alcohol is not my problem. He says, I can stop drinking. So he, he you know, got himself voluntarily admitted to an outpatient uh, alcohol repra- uh, rehab program up at Point Loma where he attended, but wound up um, failing in his last week there. He was doing 
very well, but was still having problems sleeping. And and I'll, I'll take you back to when they prescribed him sleep aids, Ambien. Um, he took some Ambien and woke up one morning, literally his last week in the treatment program, and there was a whole six-pack of empty beer cans on his um, living room table, and he had no recollection of it. And and when he went into the center that, that morning, you know, because they have him blow on the pipe, he, he popped positive for alcohol in the system, and, you know, they, you know, said you're out which to me was upside down i mean that was you're out of the program out yeah of the Navy, yeah out of the, no no out of the program you know you failed the you know the sark program the, the uh, substance abuse rehab program because that was our rule you can't be drinking but to me that was kind of like so counterintuitive because you've yeah. got to expect that some folks are going to fall off the the wagon and you got to pull them back in because this you know addiction is not an easy thing to deal with yeah it seems like you get rolled back not dropped from the program yeah so anyway um but then we came to learn that you know and and, and you know you get great clarity after some incidents but he had taken ambient before and there have been some some uh, events i remember he was home and he took Ambien one time, and he, you know, fell uh, into a wall in the house, and and then crawled back into bed. And the next day, you know, I, I, I go into his room, and there's a freaking big hole in the drywall, and you know, and he's you know getting up, you know, out of bed. And I said, "What happened?" And he, and he says, "I don't know. I didn't do that." And so we came to find out that when he was on this Ambien, which is a side effect, he had amnesia, you know, and, and it's not an uncommon side effect that you hear from some people. And that's why they're pulling, pulling away from using drugs like Ambien, you know. So, you know, this was part of the calculus of, you know, what happened with this, this alcohol incident. But uh, as we went into the, uh, the end of 2015, um, it things just you know he was they were trying to med board him out and unfortunately you know at that time um you know med boards were looked at as uh not a favorable you know exit strategy uh by the community there were some personalities in the community that felt that folks that were seeking medical boards were um you know playing the system and uh so his medical providers were, were trying to get him a le- legitimately trying to get him a medical board, and you know here's here's the thing he didn't want to leave the navy, mm-hmm. but he knew you know it was his own decision that he says I, I you know I, I'm afraid that I'm going to get somebody hurt because uh, here's a kid who used to be on top of the mountain and now is you know slid you know, is sliding down the slope, trying to understand what hap- who's gone, what's happening to him, and he's not getting any answers. And then he's becoming more and more distrustful of the system because information's coming out about him that, you know, he's saying, well, who, who's talking about this? Who's releasing my medical information? Now, there's a certain, you know, responsibility that, you know, leadership needs to know, you know, somebody's condition, and, and if they're, you know, uh, a potential threat, or a safety issue, but you know he started. You know, you know, in, instead of looking at, you know, 
the system and the medical enterprise as as a, a, you know a, a pathway to get help. He started um, sensing that you know they were weaponizing his his you know issues against him, and there was definitely you know within a command element. Um, a sense that, hey, we don't want to be burdened with these problems. We don't have time for it. So, you know, maybe he needs to leave. And uh, the VA would be a better place for him. You know, they're better equipped to handle this stuff. And, uh, you know, we went through the, the you know, Christmas, uh, New Year's holiday, which was a rough period. He came home. And, you know, he's just coming apart. You know, he's... He, he feels like he's been betrayed um, by, you know, by the community that he has put everything into. He feels that he's let his boys down because, you know, he can't do his job anymore, which was a big, big, you know, hit to him. They were hanging a bunch of labels on him that, uh, you know, you're, you know, you know, you're uh, alcohol abuser, you're a prescription drug abuser. Oh, by the way, they were the ones writing the prescriptions. But in in their effort to help him control his pain, they put him on opioids, which is, as we're finding out now, when you put somebody on opioids, they need more opioids to control their pain. You actually dig a dig- deeper hole by putting them on opioids. What, do you know when he started getting put on opioids yeah the fall of uh, 2015 and and then together with the alcohol um, which he had pulled away from um, on his own uh, but you know again he it at that time they were also realizing that he shouldn't be on a faxer so the psychiatrist that was treating him wanted to get him off of a faxer and was in the process of writing a medical board for him, and they wound up transferring him completely out of the community. So he lost continuity with his, you know, the people that he had been working with and who he had trusted. And now he was, you know, starting from square one again, and and in an environment that was not very receptive to, uh, you know, processing these medical boards. And so he. Um, started distrusting the system and and it became adversarial uh, now he you know he, he never gotten in trouble as far as you know getting locked up outside or you know confronting the authorities he never hurt anybody he never did anything that you know wound up you know calling attention to himself until after he came back from the Christmas New Year's holiday when you know, while he was home, he was dealing with pain to, to a level that um, uh, he couldn't stand. He had run out of his prescription medication and, and had, you know, turned to some marijuana to, to try to deal with the pain. And when he came back, you know, to the, uh, you know, to his unit after that holiday, you know, he popped positive for you know, cannabis in the system and wound up, you know, you know, being brought forward for a uh, NJP, you know, captain's mast of which, you know, and again, I think there were some folks who were legitimately trying to get him help. But at that point, he had 
was too far down the road and not trusting the system anymore and had come to a point where he said, look, I got to get out. And uh, which, which was tearing him apart because he wanted to stay in. He loved what he was doing. Um, and I, I think out of loyalty to his teammates, he says, I got to go before somebody gets hurt. And um, I remember that, you know, the day that he had gone, I was not out here for it. The day he had gone through the captain's mast, he had scores of people showing up um, on his behalf mm-hmm. saying, you know, you know, what kind of operator it was, you know, that this was not him, that, you know, not sure what was happening. But yet, I think, in my opinion, um, some of the leadership that was uh, in place at the time really weren't interested in that. They just wanted to get rid of the problem. And and he wasn't the only one. I mean, there, there had been a pattern of behavior. Um, you know, I, I just... Like I said, I, I think it was a dynamic of some folks not knowing what they didn't know, trying to do the right thing for the right reason, maybe all the wrong way, and then there was some personalities that definitely factored into the calculus, uh, personalities that definitely had, you know, uh, at a senior command level, uh, the ability to influence, you know, uh, uh, the course of you know, options that mm-hmm. Ryan had. But I think at that point he had already made the decision, I got to get out. And uh, I remember they, they started processing him out and you got to go through all your, you know, your final medical examinations. You've got to turn your kid in and all that. And he was supposed to show up one morning and he um, didn't show up. So they wound up sending a couple guys out, and they found that he was completely up, you know, uptunded. He was, you know, he was hallucinating. He was, you know, he, you know, just. And and and, and I have no knowledge of this. And and by then they had already, you know, we had had some folks that you and I know had gone to his apartment and made sure that there's no firearms or anything because the concern was really starting to you know, escalate that, you know, maybe he, he would hurt himself, you know. Um, you know, he, he was he was unraveling, you know, emotionally, you know, becoming paranoid, felt that people were watching him and listening to him, and he was getting into a dark place and becoming isolated. And so they sent him out. They sent these guys out to, to bring him in and uh, determined that he needed to go to Bethesda for, a, you know, a safety evaluation. And in the course of doing that, um, they, you know, they basically were restricting his movements uh, while he was in the emergency department going through an evaluation. And and I, I would submit to you that if you hold any freaking frogman or seal down and physically, you know, constrain them, it, you know, it, it it is not going to be a good outcome. And he made some threats um, to his leadership who he had felt were behind some of that action and um that's all they needed at that point to lock him up in the mental health ward and once that happens that's a stain that follows you forever and he wound up being in there for three almost four weeks and i remember 
you know, on one occasion talking to his providers, um, asking Was them, that at Bethesda? That was at Bethesda. Um, I'm sorry. No, let me correct that. It was not Bethesda. It was at San Diego okay. uh, Medical Center. Uh, he had gone to Bethesda for the NICO, but he was now back on the West Coast. And, Are and you talking to him? I'm talking to him. And, and, and he, he's even becoming distrustful of me, you know, because, and I gotta be, I gotta be honest with you, some of the things he's telling me, I just don't, you know, I mean, just, it can't be, because I'm putting my trust in the command and, and, and the medical enterprise out there, you know, to do the right thing. Matter of fact, they said to me, hey, hey, Pop, I'm, you know, your Dad, I'm glad you're out here, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's good that, you know, you're showing the interest, but, you know, he's ours and we'll take care of him. I'll never forget that, and then um, and then went to visit him while he was in this lockdown unit, and and you know you talk about um, somebody who um, I, I didn't even recognize my son anymore. They had completely stripped him of his dignity. He 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 was, you know, guys from his teams would come to visit him, and he just couldn't even look at them. He 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 just was just. It was horrible what they did to him, and, and this place was horrible. And I remember a couple of his clinicians saying to me that um, he shouldn't be here. And, and, I, and I came to find out that a couple of them stepped up to the command and said, why is he here? He shouldn't be here. And, and again, by then, I, I should have picked up on the flags, um, but I didn't. But all the communications turned to lawyers, and that was a bad sign. Because to me, what I missed was now this was all about building a case for getting rid of them, not helping them. And one of the clinicians told me that she openly protested um, something that the medical command wanted her and her team to do. And she said ethically she was not going to do it. I don't know to this day exactly what that was, but it was something that was not going to work in Ryan's favor and certainly was going to work into the favor of the command's effort to get rid of him. And and um, and this is all verifiable. She actually, you know, wrote uh, 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 a piece about this that she published. And I'll, I'll, I'll never forget this. This was... Um, February of 2016, and Jocko, um, he was discharged from the mental health lockdown ward and discharged simultaneously from the Navy and, ne and not allowed to come back to the team for closure. Uh, and, you know, the staff there said it was the first time they had ever seen anything like that happen. And this kid had never been a threat to anybody. As I said, the only thing he did was threaten, you know, some of his leadership who we felt felt were responsible for, you know, putting him in in that circumstance uh, because they were holding him down, you know, on a litter in an emergency department. And I submit to you, who wouldn't react that way? But that's what the, you know. That was like the icing on the cake. It it gave them, you know, their. It just solidified, you know, their actions and, 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 you know, their justification for getting rid of them. But I'll never forget, um, you know, the, the personnel 
you know, chief that came in and the MAA, uh, when they discharged him and signed him out, had tears running down their, you know, their faces. I mean, they just, you know, they, they couldn't say anything, but they said, you know, you could just see you know, the, the, the empathy that they had for what was they were being asked to do. And, and my son was just, he had no emotion. I remember walking him out, you know, from the hospital, and he was still wearing, you know, like a hospital scrub top and a pair of board shorts and flip-flops. And, and my wife and I were looking at him, and he didn't even look like our son anymore. And, and, and he stops like halfway before we get to the parking lot, and he says, he looks to me, he says, Dad, you know, why'd they do this to me? All I was trying to do is help. All I was trying to do is help my boys. Why'd they do this to me? And uh, shortly after that, we moved them up to uh, Palo Alto to the VA hospital up there. They had a polytrauma unit up there that we had gotten them in. And, you know, to put, to put more freaking, uh, you know, kind of uh, to, to really cap this thing off, he gets a call from one of his buddies a couple of days later and says, hey, man, where are you? We haven't seen you around. But there's posters with your face on it all over the place. You know, be on the lookout that, you know, you're not allowed, you know, in any of our facilities. It was a, it was a, it was a bolo that, that had been put out by the command saying, being on the lookout for this guy. And it, that immediately sent a, a shock through my system of, holy cow, if, if he is even, you know, seen, you know, anywhere near any of our, our uh, you know, San Diego Naval facilities, how are some of these freaking security types going to react to him? You know, I, I mean, this was like, this was so bush league, so like unprofessionals. I, I had never seen anything about it. This poster was um, just a, uh, and, and he, he laughed it off. He laughed, but I know it was like somebody had just, you know, stabbed him in the back and twisted the knife. And, and his teammates went around and, and yanked all those posters down. And, and I just, you know, I, I just felt, you know, th there's this new term coming out called institutional betrayal. And, you know, I, I, I said, you know, in a public forum that was held, um, you know, a number of years later where, you know, I had put my trust in the community. I came out of the community. I loved the community. It gave me my foundation. I'm entirely grateful for the experience. My son loved the community. I loved being a SEAL. But they so disappointed us. So disappointed us when we trusted them to do the right thing. And, and as you've expressed, unless you say anything different to me here, Jocko, I have never heard anybody say anything negative about him. That he was always trying to do the right thing. He was a good team player. He was loyal. And yeah, they saw changes in him towards the end. But, you know, as we come to learn, there was reason for those changes. But, you know, I, I felt that, you know, some of those command personalities violated our core ethos. They left one of our own behind. 
Um, a friend of mine named um, Sarah Wilkinson, who's who's been on the podcast, and know her very well. Yeah, it, that that was really for me a, a very enlightening um, conversation I had with her, especially when she started. You know, the thing that always has stuck with me, and I just saw her this past weekend, but the thing that's always stuck with me was how she described very similar to what you're describing. And that is, you know, she was saying that the person, the person at the end, Chad at the end, that killed himself simply was not the same person that that she had married. That's, he, he had changed in a radical way that was not the same person that she had initially married. Yeah. And, uh, and unfortunately, you know, we um, ha- have a group of us that have lost loved ones in this community, then we can finish each other's sentences. Mm-hmm. Um, as, you're, as you're seeing this thing unfold, I mean, you're talking to, you got friends in the teams. And and you just weren't getting, or or was it the trust that you had in them? Was it like how did that? How were those conversations going? Well, they had a concern for Ryan, but this was this happened so fast that they didn't even know he was gone. Mm-hmm. And you know, one of the guys says to me, you know, if this, you know, the, he's the guy we looked up to. This is this is the guy we wanted to be. If they could do this to him. You know, if this could happen to him, what does this mean? You know, mean for the rest of us? Mm-hmm. And you know, Brian constantly said that you know I'm worried about my boys. They're experiencing these things, and I I kept warning him. I said, look, be careful, son, because you know very often the bureaucracies kill the messenger. Just be real careful. I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. And I said, look, you got to take care of your own issues first before you worry about everybody else. But he was their doc. You know, when, when something wasn't right, they were coming to him. And he felt that he had let them down. And and that was a, a big part of the burden that he, he wrestled with. Plus, the labels that they hung on him, you know, you know, operationally, you know, in effect, or, you know, unsat, whatever, you know, just all the labels that they needed to push him out the door. And fortunately, we got him out with an honorable discharge with his trident, um, but he never hurt anyone. If anything, I think it's because of his, to a fault, his loyalty to his boys and, and to, the, to the community, you know, wound up setting him up for how, how things happened. And, you know, this is another in, interesting point. Um, we're also finding out right now as we do some of these post-mortem or, or forensics on, on some of these incidents, the vulnerability that somebody who separates from service, and especially from a, a from a team dynamic like this, is it, it's a very critical time. Your first one, two, three years out, and how you separate is is absolutely a factor on how things go. So if you elect to leave or retire because it's your time, you're looking at the new horizon, new opportunity, new adventure. That's one thing. You've probably scoped out your LZ your glide slope to get there. But if you're pushed out 
or you feel that you have to leave because, as you know, in the team dynamic, you don't ever want to fail your teammates. You, you don't want to. And, and a lot of times, even though you're close, you know, you know, absolutely close to your brothers, you still don't want them to see that you're hurt. You know, you'll, you'll put that mask on, you know, and you'll, you'll do everything you can to, to continue to do the job, to be there, you know, to be, to make sure that, you know, they can depend on you. And when you feel like you can't do that, that creates a whole different level of attention. And I've talked to more guys that have said the reason I left is because I, I felt that I wasn't able to, to do the job the way it needed to be done, and I didn't want to disappoint my boys. So when you have those kind of negative influences or less than optimum conditions where somebody's separating, it, it kind of puts them in a whole different place, and I think that makes them more vulnerable for um, – that period when they when they separate mm-hmm. where they can become isolated and, and get into some dark places and and this is where this whole issue of institutional betrayal um is starting to, to gain some momentum it's it's you know really you know how you separate somebody how you you know that glide path of departure is is really critical as to how they're going to be able to navigate their way forward uh, from that point on so it's it's February 2016. That's when is that when he was yeah, uh, discharged. discharged? Yeah, and then he's up in Palo Alto. What's he? What's he? Is he is he like in a inpatient up there in Palo Alto? Well, initially it was an inpatient, then became an outpatient, but it didn't work out, and he wound up coming back east, where he then um, had another you know bad episode where he had to be admitted to the. Uh, the VA in Baltimore for a period of time. And by then, you know, he's, he's just feeling that, um, you know, nothing's going to get better. Uh, we got him into some programs. Uh, we got him into the brain treatment program down in, uh, Texas, uh, the Cerebrum, uh, center down there. Um, and then we got him in for some, um, uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation, you know, on the West Coast in Newport, um, we had some other options that we had gotten him, you know, into. But this was, in many cases, on our own dime. And, and you know, when he goes to these places, you know, you're paying for a hotel room that's, you know, a couple hundred bucks a night. You know, the food, transportation, all that, um, you know, very quickly starts to, you know, deplete your your resources. And like I said, you know... When you got somebody like Ryan, a loved one, who's you know in this this level of desperation, you'll do anything. You'll do anything to save their life, and you become very vulnerable. You know, we, we didn't have a good level of situational awareness of what you know was available, and uh, anyway, he you know about a year out from when he left the Navy, and he'd been trying to to get answers and go through these programs. He'd you know, on the positive side, he had started back at the community college. He was taking, you know, he, he had an, like I said, he was a very intelligent guy, uh, had, had a tremendous ability to abstract, but he uh, started taking, uh, he, he had a, um, uh, a real affinity for numbers. 
So he started taking calculus and algebra and, and then very quickly advanced into advanced calculus and advanced algebra. And he was taking, you know, science courses and, you know, he was looking at, you know, maybe going into PA school, physician's assistant mm-hmm. school. But it was interesting, you know, he could do these advanced problems and very often would, when he felt stress, would, would you know, go to the basement of our home and his way of dealing with stress was to do math problems. But then he was having trouble navigating himself through, through the day. He would have, you know, these outbursts of anger. He would, you know, y- you would look at him and it, his face would be completely, you know, devoid of any emotion. He'd look right through you. And you would even like talk to him and he wouldn't respond. He would just be, you know, kind of fixated looking, you know, right through you, right past you. Um, he, you know, he wasn't exercising that much. He was still, you know, drinking, but not, you know, excessively. He started smoking, which he had never done before, which he said helped to calm his nerves down. He was still having problems with sleeping. And, um, and fortunately, you know, one of his former girlfriends had come forward to be with him as a caregiver. And she was a very stabilizing influence, but yet, to be around somebody like that, it took every bit of her patience and, um, you know, uh, determination to, to stay with him, to, to help him. But in the course of being at the VA, the medicines, the, the drugs just kept on coming, you know. In my, my estimation at the VA, it, it was just such a huge gorilla of a bureaucracy. It was even for somebody like me, and I, I've got multiple, you know, advanced degrees, I, I, I was having trouble navigating through the VA, let alone somebody that is, you know, um, kind of turned inside out. And I remember that I would take them to the waiting room there at the Baltimore VA, and they would be, you know, packed full of, you know, older veterans all wearing their ball caps, you know, from Korea, from World War II, from, you know, Vietnam, you know, the Gulf War. And I could see the look on his face you know, as he looked around, and you could just see it. Is this me? Is this going to be me? You know, um, and it was just, um, you know, it just was ripping my heart in half. And, you know, like I said, I got a medical background. My wife's a trauma nurse. I mean, we were completely unprepared for this, you know, and uh, we're sitting around a fire one night, you know, it was March of uh, 2017 out behind our house and it's just him and I and you know he says to me you know dad uh something's wrong with my head but nobody's listening to me you know they just keep telling me I'm crazy and you know I said to him look you know we'll we'll get through this you know um you know we got you out you know we're you're going to school he says yeah I I know but some something's wrong with my head and I, I I just you know it's just so hard it's just so hard he said and he said, you know, I'm not going to live to an old age. I just want you to know that um, I'm just banged up inside. And to look at him, he looked like a gladiator, you know, uh, other than the fact that, you know, some wear and tear over the past year and so forth. But still, you couldn't see he didn't have any disfiguring wounds. He had both his arms, his legs. Um, he says, yeah, I'm not going to live to him. You know, I'm just banged up. And uh, if anything ever happens to me, I want you to donate my brain and my body for uh, traumatic brain injury research and um, breacher syndrome research. And I said, well, you know, Ryan, come on. You know, you're going to be fine. You know, we're, 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 we're uh, 
we're going to get through this, you know. And at the same time, he had, you know, been processing uh, or worked up for a position at Secret Service at their training academy. You know, they wanted him to help with their emergency medicine training and some of their tactical training, and they were very interested in him. So the things were opening up, you know. He, uh, you know, and they didn't see any of what he had been through as a disability um, or, 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 or uh, you know, an impediment. But um, um, on, on April uh, 23rd uh, of 2017, you know, uh, we had just come home from an overnight trip where my wife and I went to a family event, and uh, I'll never forget it. Uh, it was a Sunday morning, and uh, his dog, you know, a Belgian Malinois, was, was like going apeshit, you know, as we, you know, came into the house and something said something's not right. I mean, something, I, you could feel the spidey sense in me saying something's not right. And uh, I had found that he had taken his life in, in, in the basement of our home. He uh, didn't use a firearm. Um, you know, he, he asphyxiated himself. Um, he was wearing a SEAL Team 7 t-shirt. Uh, he was wearing uh, red, white, and blue board shorts and had illuminated a shadow box that I had made for him that prior Christmas that had all you know his medals and insignias and other memorabilia in there. And then he had burned a hard drive in the fireplace with all his deployment photos and stuff. And, uh, you know, um, Jocko, I, I, it, you know, I've been through a lot of stuff in my life you know, seen a lot of, you know, human tragedy. And up to that point, I thought maybe 9-11 was at the top of my list. But I'll tell you, uh, when I found him, my, my heart just ripped in half. And and, uh, and I, I just, um, you know, it, it you know, it, it, I loved him to death. He was, my, he was my swim buddy, you know. And I didn't like what he did. I didn't support what he did, but I've grown to understand why he did it. And it was really was for his boys. He was trying to prove, you know, that something was wrong. And, you know, to, to lend some evidence to that, as we got into his computer afterwards, he had been reading countless studies on head trauma and, and brain injury and, you know, researching the drugs that they had been putting him on and, and um, had written you know, as I went through his papers, had written some personal reflections of how, you know, he was not being treated the right way, how he felt that, you know, he had been betrayed, you know, um, by some elements of the command, that, you know, um, that something was wrong with his head. And, you know, you know, he's gone. And so, you know, you, you know, the, the burden that I carry, honestly, is, you know, I, I've been rescuing other people for like 40 plus years. And in the end, I couldn't rec rescue my own son. And uh, so, you know, how do you deal with something like that? How do you deal with that? And I so desperately wanted to have one more conversation with him. And that kind of put me in a bad place because my, you know, what, you know, that was not going to be a good route. Um, so I, you know, he knew what he was doing. He knew what he wanted me to do. And he had even re offered some reflections to some of his friends that said, hey, if anything ever happens to me, make sure my father, 
takes, you know, takes hold of this and tells the story. And, uh, and that's, and that's what I've been doing. You know, his story has, um, has really opened up and, and what happened is a couple months after he, he took his life, um, we got, we had complied with his wish and got his brain donated for uh, a very intense research project that was looking at, you know, uh, military blast exposure. And um, they came back to us and briefed us out like two months later. And I remember walking into the briefing room to, to this world-renowned neuropathologist who looked at Ryan's brain. And, and I said, look, man, doc, don't tell me what I want to hear. Just tell me the truth. Just tell me what you found. And he says, look, it's not the case. He says, your son suffered from a severe level of microscopic brain injury uniquely related to blast exposure. And, and, uh, and you know, and he showed us, you know, the slides. He showed us, you know, the extent of the injury. And for my wife and I, we just like all of a sudden had this weight lifted off our shoulders. We, we got an explanation that there was, you know, all along Ryan was right. There was something wrong with his head, but they didn't see it. And, and we've come to learn because we don't have the technology to see it in a living person. Not too different than from what, you know, like our contact sports players, you know, football players, you know, mixed martial arts, you name it, um, with CTE. And, and the evolution of CTE in the brain, we can't see that in a living person yet. And so, you know, it became very clear that day what my mission needed to be, and that's bring attention to this and, and illuminate um, this brain health threat that, you know, almost, you know, creates this perfect storm of what we call invisible wounds. You know, invisible wounds is the signature injury of, of this 20-plus years of conflict and also can be assigned to previous conflicts. But, you know, we, we've got somebody that looks normal and, and we don't see anything, you know, wrong, but inside they're broken up. They're hurt. And, you know, they're dealing with, you know, post-traumatic stress. They're dealing with moral injury. We don't talk about that a lot. You know, that's, you know, where you... You know, we raise our kids to value human life, respect each other, follow the rule of law, and all of a sudden we're projecting them to places around the world where that's not exactly the, you know, how life's lived. And they're come, they come home conflicted back to a society that's very judgmental, so they don't want to talk about this. You know, it, so it's, it chews away on the inside of them like Pac-Man. And then everybody we know that's been in this business, and even the fire service, they're all in pain some sort of physical pain, emotional pain, spiritual pain, and they, so they desperately try to deal with that pain. So then you get these substance use disorders. Alcohol is a big part of it. And then, of course, the opioid crisis where, you know, our, our, our clinicians, our medical providers were so quick to write that prescription for those, for those painkillers, which have completely addicted our society. And addiction is not a trivial thing. It's a rewiring of the brain. And now that we find out that there's a growing body of evidence that you know, exposure to blast, blast over pressure, is ripping the circuits, circuitry in our brains, and really complicating some of this. And to your point earlier, everybody is different, 
and everybody reacts differently to injury and they heal at different rates. And we're just trying to understand that the research has not been at the level of urgency with a level of priority that it needs to be, especially after 20 years of dealing with this. And when I was in Giado, we recognized this back in 2010, 2011, we started to look at this and Congress told us to back off, it's not our job. And in, and in my opinion, we lost almost 10 years of potential research opportunity to understand what was going on. But we're starting to get some answers right now, and it's undeniable. It's disruptive. And it's really causing a lot of heartache within the psychiatric mental health community. That, you know, on one hand, you, you've got some clinicians and providers saying, what do you mean? We've been treating all our people wrong, you know, the past, you know, decade, you know number of decades. It's not what we're saying. We just didn't know what we didn't know. But science is always challenging our assumptions. Should always be a driver for us to look at things differently. And that's what's happening right now. And so there's a growing body of evidence that's showing that there's a biological connection to some of what we're seeing. And it would be irresponsible of me to say that psychiatry and mental health uh, don't play a part in this because it does. It goes hand in glove. It goes hand in glove. Uh, just like some of the medications, I am not an anti-pharmaceutical, you know, you know, uh, person. Uh, I realize that drugs have a tremendous ability to save lives, but in some cases we just misuse them. And there's a lot of, you know, instances where we have medical providers out there who have no background in this stuff prescribing medications for stuff that they have that, you know, they're not a psychiatrist. They, they don't, they're not a neuroscientist. They don't know the full effects of these drugs will have on a person. And, but yet, because they have MD behind their name, they can write that drug and prescribe it. And so we're treating symptoms. We're not we're not identifying what the root cause is, and that's really where my focus is with, with trying to push and advocate for the science, is we gotta get down and understand what's behind all this. And, and I say this to leadership within the community, within the special operations community, within defense. Whatever solution we come up with cannot impact our operational effectiveness or our lethality on the battlefield. We can't be afraid to understand what's going on because that information, that knowledge will help us navigate through this in a way that we can buy down this, that buy down on these risks on the front end without impacting, like I said, our performance on the battlefield and the resiliency of our force. And that's what we have to look at is how do we increase the resiliency of our force? And very often I talk to the veterans and the warriors who I come in contact with, they're struggling. And with this knowledge, I tell them, look, you're not crazy. You very well be, be injured. Injured because you did what this nation asked you to do, to go into harm's way, to do the tough jobs that you've done. And you have come home burdened with these injuries. And, and when you look at it, how could you not come home burdened with some injuries? You know, when you look at, you know, the operational exposures and so forth, and we're seeing environmental exposures and how they're coming into play, you know, with the discussion about burn pits, let alone 
blast over pressure and and you know head strikes and so forth. So it it really creates this this rubric that we just need to understand. And I th- I believe that it you know we will get through this because it's not because we lack the intellectual capability or the capacity. We lack the unity of effort to circle the wagons on this, just like we did with the IED. Level the playing field, talk a common language, move in a common direction, guided by the science. We'll figure this out. Are there, where where does like the resistance come from? Is it ego? Is it closed minds? Is it this is the way we've been doing it forever? Is it like where, where, why would someone? I mean, clearly, anyone that's listening to this right now would say, oh, "Okay, we've discovered that there's probably another co- there's another cause for this type of downward spiral for people. How do we fix it?" Is there? It sounds like there's resistance to that. What, where does that come from? Well, I would say D, all of the above. Just a little bit of everything. Yeah, you've got people that, uh, you know, this is not their scope of practice. This is not, you know, where they, this is not, this challenges their comfort square. Um, This, you know, creates a tension, um, uh, you know, know, in the force, so to speak. Um, And, but we can't be afraid of this, you know. We've been up against, you know, other disease processes, you know, cancer, you know, we've been up against, um, you know, HIV AIDS, we have been up against COVID and other challenges. And at first, the reactions fear, you know, let's ignore this, let's, let's kind of put our head in the sand, let's make it, you know, wish it that goes away. And then we get to this point, a crisis point where I think we are right now with this head, brain health stuff is okay, we have to understand what's going on. And so am I a little disappointed in the Department of Defense and the fact that they have not made this a priority despite spending over $2 billion, I, you know, with very little to show? $2 billion on what? On, on brain health initiatives, on, on mental health, on suicide prevention. Uh, but it, is, it has all been kind of a, you know, boutique ad hoc, you know, efforts. I mean, and again, it's not to say that there haven't been some good advances that have happened within defense health, but I'm disappointed in the fact that they have not uh, led the way I feel they could have led on this subject, considering the risk and the threat that this you know, puts on uh, our force. And, and we're starting to see the, the, the effects of this, where recruitments are down. And, and also retention is, is having a problem. And even I think within our community, people are worried about, you know, you know they love, you know, um, this community. And, and you can talk to any special operations or conventional unit that, you know, hey, you know, they, this was an important part of their life. But at some point they also realize that, hey, if, if I stay too long, or if I have too much exposure, what you know, am I going to wind up like that? And and I, because I'm getting these questions from from Ryan's contemporaries right now. You know, people who are at the the time and place in their career where their level of maturity, you know, their operational maturity or their leadership maturity, 
um, is is right, you know, what we need. But if they're if they're getting out, that's not helping us. So what's being left behind? You know, so you know how many people that um, you know early promotion or must promote are are leaving that equation, and and what's what's being left behind within our our developmental you know um, cadre. Mm-hmm. I, you know, does that make sense? I mean, does that make sense to you? I don't know. I mean, from your perspective and who you talk to, are, are you seeing, uh, you know, reflections of, of that type of behavior right now? Yeah, I think that guys are more conscious of their health and wellness than we ever were. You know, everything from nutrition to working out to to everything that goes with that. And that's because the whole world has moved forward. And we, right. we've we been at the cutting edge. You know, we, we, we've been pretty far forward on the cutting edge of how to get in good shape, how to stay in good shape, what nutrition we should be doing. But, and I think guys are now more cognizant of that, but they're also more cognizant of, well, what is this doing to me? Where am I gonna end up? How is this gonna impact me in, at a later date? And, I think there there has been some protocols implemented now that they're starting to track this stuff at some level. I I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm sure it's not at the level it should be, but I know that they're assessing, you know, like I was talking about earlier, you know, I used to go out on the range as an RSO with got with a platoon out there shooting rockets and you'd go out there and and stand there and watch right. 15, 16 guys shoot rockets. And you'd take those blasts, you'd take 16 blasts. Well, now they're limited to three. Well, what did that do to my, you know, my, my time frame of guys or Ryan's time frame of guys when he would go out there and, you know, you're teaching somebody how to throw a crash into a room. Well, you're going to sit there. You're outside the room, but still, you're going to do that for a task unit. 40 guys are going to huck a crash into a room. And so, so I think it has become, I think people are starting to become aware of it. And I think that they're seeing guys like Chad, guys like Ryan. I mean, the guys that I talked to about Ryan, they they reported that, hey, here's a guy that was good to go. I mean, just good to go. And by the time he's at trade at, guys are having a hard time like communicating with him. You know, when you were talking about him having like a blank look on his face, that's the feedback that I got. He was sort of like blank stare, didn't feel like, you know, guys are talking to him. And I think one of the biggest problems for leadership is at that time, they don't, they don't even know what's happening, right? They think, oh, well, what's his problem? Oh, uh, you know, what's his deal? Oh, he's not, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a freaking commander or I'm a master chief. Why is this guy, you know, when I'm telling him he, should, he needs to square his shit away and he looks at me with a blank stare, he's got a bad attitude because they don't understand where how how much this stuff has impacted someone and I, so i think the recognition of knowing what signs we should be looking for for leaders to say oh here's a guy that was totally squared away and now he's acting like a different person there's something wrong that i need to address from a medical perspective not from a disciplinary perspective perspective and that was one of the people i talked to was made that exact point is that we as a community have a tendency or at least had a tendency of someone's not doing what they should be doing 
it's not a it's not a health problem it's a disciplinary problem right and that's a huge differentiation you know because part of it's because of what I talked about earlier hey you got a guy you know one of your guys goes out gets drunk gets in a fight cool you discipline him he he stops doing it we got the problem solved well if he's showing up drunk or not showing up or he's late or he's despondent or he's not responding the way he should be and you say t- hey man you're freaking late again you slept in you whatever you you're late again discipline I discipline him it doesn't correct him why doesn't it correct him because the problem isn't a discipline problem the problem is a health problem I believe that shift is starting to take place or has has started to take place I think Ryan Ryan's one of the reasons why that I think people recognize right in 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 a post-mortem that oh we failed as a community to see that what we thought was a discipline problem wasn't a discipline problem it's a health problem and again we're very used to yeah you know freaking guy gets in trouble when a seal gets in trouble they are horrified they want for every reason that you just talked about from ryan's perspective it's when we get in trouble, it's like, oh, I can't, I'm not gonna be able to deploy with my guys. I'm not gonna be able to take care of my guys. I'm gonna lose, you know, I might lose my trident. I might, I'm, I'm making the community look bad. Like all those reasons, troublemakers in the SEAL teams, they they square themselves away, right? They square themselves away because they don't wanna get kicked out. They don't wanna have problems. Right. So when we see someone that has continued problems, we should recognize and, and again, I believe that we're moving in this direction, that there's probably not a discipline problem. There's probably a problem. There's, some, uh, there's an underlying health problem that's the issue. Because, look, uh, how many guys have I, <laughs> I always joke, I, I, only, I only wrote up, I would say I wrote up, I think, three or four guys in my whole career. Three of them, I only wrote them up because I was told to write them up by my boss because something had happened and I was like, all right, I gotta write you up. That's the way it's going. And then I'd take those things and a couple weeks later and put them in the shredder. Because 99% of the time, when I pulled the guy aside and said, hey, look, dude, you just did this. If you do that shit again, it's gonna be a problem. They'd be like, I got it, boss, no problem. I'll fix it. And it wouldn't be a problem anymore. So when we see someone that now has a disciplinary problem and they make a mistake and they do it again and they do it again and they do it again, the recognition that either this guy has like a serious, could be an alcohol problem, could be a drug problem, or we have this other this other possibility now, which is TBI, which is post-traumatic stress, those kind of things. And unfortunately, also on top of all this, you got guys that they do something stupid, and what they say is, oh, it's because I got PTSD. So right. sh- hey, shut they're, up, dude. They're gaming the system. They're yeah. gaming the system. And, and that's a terrible thing yes. to, to have happen as well because that delays someone from looking at like a Ryan and going, hey, dude, c- c- cut the shit. You know, knock it off. You don't have, hey, I was on a bunch of deployments too. You know, that's another conversation I had in the last few days. We look at guys that had problems. They're on the same deployment as me. Hey, I was on that, I was on that deployment with you. He, what are you talking about? Oh, this guy was on that deployment too with you. I know him. He's fine. What's wrong with you? And sometimes it's like, well, guess what? I've had this conversation. Hey, that guy who's doing knucklehead shit, who's saying he has PTSD, he was doing knucklehead shit when he was 25. And he's, and he's still doing knucklehead shit right. when he was 27. And now he's 42, and he's still doing... It has nothing to do with PTSD. It has right. to do with, with the freaking dude's a little bit of a wild character. So we need to put him in a position where we can take care of him and keep him out of trouble. But those, those guys that kind of, as you said, game the system, really hurt the guys that have legitimate 
freaking problems. And I think there's a huge spectrum. I think you can have guys that are out on that are out on the same deployment. They go through the same. They can be on the same operations, and it can affect them in a radically different way. And it, that that's just a fact of life. And this is not my, just my opinion. You look at guys in World War II. You look at guys in Vietnam. You look at guys in the Korean War. Go watch uh, uh, Band of Brothers, right? Dick Winters talks about that. He talks about, hey, every guy was here. We all did this same thing. Some guys needed to go home. We right. didn't hold anything against them. And by the way, that's I forget the name of the character in Band of Brothers, but he's a real person, and Dick Winters talks about it in his book on leadership. When that guy broke, and he remember this guy, I can't remember the character's name, I apologize. He's a badass guy that's leading from the front, that's taking all kinds of risks, and he reaches a breaking point. And the whole company looks at him and goes, yep, yep, get him home. They hold nothing against him. He reaches breaking point. You take another guy like Spears, who was doing all that stuff as well and kept doing it and did even more dangerous stuff, never never impacted him in a negative way, just kept doing it. Everyone, and, and what Hackworth says in About Face, Everybody's got a cup, and when it's a different size for everybody, you put you put combat trauma into that cup. Some people, it's going to overflow. Some people got a pint. Some people got a gallon. Some people got a teaspoon. And it's and it's it's almost genetic. I mean, whether it's just genetic or nature or nurture, but however they grew up here or however they ended up, they got a cup, and when that thing overflows, th- that's it. That you got to get them out of that combat area. And if you're a good leader, you recognize, hey, they gave everything that they could. And they both those guys also talk about the fact that if you can take that person before they break and you go, hey man, you need, you're coming off the front lines for a while. We're gonna put you in the rear. We're gonna put you in, a, in an admin position. We're gonna let you do some shore duty. They can recover and they can come back. But once you burn out that engine, it's like the check engine light. I, tell, I, I talk about this a lot. Check engine light comes on, if you're driving a car down the highway, check engine light comes on. What should you do? Pull over, get the engine serviced. They'll change the oil, whatever they gotta do. That engine's gonna be good to go. If you keep driving that thing, what's gonna happen? You're gonna blow up the engine. You're gonna ruin it. And these are, again, so it's not really just my opinion that I've seen this myself, which I have, by the way. I had freaking guys that went through hardcore deployments and came back ready to go again. And had guys that went through not as hardcore of a deployment that needed a break and maybe couldn't deploy again. But it's not just me. This is what Dick Winters talk about. This is what Hackworth talks about. This, this is common for combat that every individual human being has a different level of resilience. And if you break them, it's going to be a problem. And we need to recognize that. Yeah. So I hope everybody's listening to what you just said because I, I, I'm at 100 200% agreement. Um, the the piece the high piece of high ground that I'm on is really kind of exposing, you know, what does uh, the brain trauma, how does that factor into this? And right now we don't have the diagnostics. And I so I feel for you know uh, command leadership, and I I believe in good order and discipline. People need to be held accountable. It's nothing like a master chief crawling up your ass because you know you're not you know doing the right thing and and that needs to happen and people still need to be held accountable but I'm convinced we've got some research studies coming out here in the next couple months that are really going to add 
uh, some fuel uh, to this. Uh, it's going to be disruptive. To your point, not everybody's going to like what they're, what they're going to hear, but it's going to make us rethink what's going on. And with that, we, we strongly believe that within the next three to five years, we're going to have diagnostics to be able to qualify this in some, a living person, not wait until after they're dead and we're doing a postmortem examination, which is going to do a couple things. And you alluded to this earlier. We're starting, you know, and a lot of it is, is because of Ryan's story and because of a, a Navy SEAL admiral who, who, you know, was captured by his story, who grabbed onto this, took it with him to SOCOM, Special Operations Command, and made this a priority uh, to baseline all the operators and to start tracking so that we could start seeing changes early. And I think as the science comes together, and I look at this like a, like a railroad track that goes off into the distance, you know, one rail is, is this effort that we're trying to do now is, is push the science, create the level of urgency and a level of focus. The other rail uh, on this train track is the here and now. We're dealing with people that are challenged right now you know, active duty warriors, veterans, first responders. And you got these cross ties that hold the tracks, you know, stable and and in alignment. And that's where that communication, that's where that knowledge development has to happen, you know, and be shared because it's not one track or the other. But as you look at that track and it goes into the distance, what happens? Those rails come together. And that's our hope is that we get a lot smarter. Um, yeah, this is going to be disruptive, and this is going to push people out of their comfort squares, and it's going to make, it's going to force us to to think about this differently. But if we can give a commander that's dealing with a situation like this that appears to be a uh, behavioral problem, that you know, as you said in the past, is usually remedied by non-judicial punishment or some type of punitive action, and we come up and say, hey. We suspected that because of his operational profile, his deployments, some of the things he's been subjected to, that there may be some uh, biological or medical ex- explanation for this. And when we have a diagnostic or, or, or a number of diagnostics that can qualify that, that's going to put this in a whole different place. That's going to be valuable information for that leadership team as they make decisions. But that's got to go hand in glove with education, where we, as we cultivate leaders, we give them this information and leaders at all levels, you know, from the very top to, to the deck plate that, hey, you know, this is a consequence of doing this job. And it's not calling out weakness. It's not, you know, focusing on, on the injury, but we got to treat it like an injury. And how do we treat injuries? We cast them up. We put them in splints. We, you know, we put them through re- rehab because we want, you know, that arm, that leg, to, to come back into, you know, 100%, you know, operational, you know, uh, capability again. Same thing goes with our brain. You said something that was very important, and which I think is a, a part of the, 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 you know, the contributing factors is that we had no reset time in the 20 plus years. That door was constantly spinning. You know, you're deployed, you come home, you go into, you know, most most guys are, are dispersed to other assignments, they go into new training, they start spinning up, and the next thing you know, they're being pumped out the door to, to another rotation. And without that time to reset, um, and, and certainly to reset somebody, just like, you know, what we see now with concussion protocols, 
you know, with the NFL, somebody gets a, a knock on the head, they're pulling them offline. And, and, and it's because what we've learned is that if you're put back into the game too soon, you're actually increasing your chances for ha- having something worse because this is, in some cases, accumulative. And another big handicap that we have, and this is why we need the science again, is we don't know the long-term implications of this. So right now, we're just starting to you know, kick the door on, on a lot of this. And we're still moving through the tall grass without a, uh, a sense of direction. But the science is going to you know, guide, us, guide us forward, which then is going to you know, help us prevent this on the front end. It's going to help us better monitor this so we can identify somebody early in the evolution of this injury or disease before it gets to the catastrophic point like it did with Ryan and they take their lives. And there's a strong, very strong connection between, you know, uh, uh, brain damage and suicide. Very strong connection. And then it's going to help us identify, you know, a uh, precision treatment protocol for that individual so that we get away from one size fits all to one size fits one and we get them down the right rehab path and we get them back into the team we get them back operational let's face it some folks may not be able to go back and do the job that they did before but they're still part of the team and we still value what they've done for this community this nation and this is not just about the seal community but you talk to sf you talk to rangers you talk to you know the uh, marine raiders they're all challenged with this i just had conversations with uk you know, uh, you know, SAS and SBS types and, and Australian and Denmark and other countries that I come in contact with through, you know, some of my other circulation, they're all struggling with these scenarios. Um, and they're all seeing the effects of uh, modern, modern warfare uh, on, on their warriors and on their veterans. So I think we're on to something. We just can't be afraid to peel it back. It's going to make us smarter. It's going to make us more resilient as a fighting force. Um, and, but yet, at the same time, uh, we're, we're going to take care of our people. We're, 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 going, to, you know, we're going to live up to our promise uh, to take care of them if something happens. Because we can't ever forget that the whole reason that they're here in the first place is because they stepped forward to do the job. Yeah, when I was reading about... Um um, you, I had a couple articles about Ryan, and um, you know, well, the the one of them was like getting called uh, unfit for operationally unfit or something like this, and we're going to get him out of the teams. And I remember one of my guys, Ryan Job, um, he had been shot in the face; he'd been uh, rendered blind, and before he decided he was going to get out, he's going to medically retire. You know, he told me like, "Oh, I want to stay in." And I want to stay in the teams. And I remember I called the admiral who I'd worked for directly for. And I was like, hey, sir, um, Ryan Job wants to stay in the teams. And the admiral goes, roger that. We'll, we'll find a job for him. He, I think he'd be an outstanding buds instructor. I'm like, I think you're right. Like he was, and that's exactly how it should be. And if you can find a, a job for a, a SEAL, which you obviously can, that's blind, then you can absolutely find a, a, a job for a guy that's hey guy guy can't be any around any blast exposures what do we got for him there's a, a thousand other jobs for him to do and that way he gets to stay in the community gets to proceed with his career gets to still be around the guys and continue serving which is you know what, what they want to do 
Yeah, and and I believe that if things had gone down a different path and he had been treated, you know, differently, he'd still be here. I I, I believe that, and I I will tell you that when I got that briefing, you know, at Bethesda Walter Reed after he had passed and they had looked at his brain, the the neuropathologist said to me, if Ryan had this information, do you think it would have made a difference? And I said, absolutely, because it would have qualified that he was right, that something was wrong with his head, that he was not crazy. And, and because every one of these folks, these men and women, are struggling with what's happened to them as they, they slide down this slope, and they're desperately trying to, to grab onto something, and they're not getting the answers. And, um, you know, we can't, we can't forget, you know, what they've done for us, and we can't demonize it um, and weaponize it against them because— um, then we're leaving people behind. And again, I, you know, some very, uh, I think, um, important points to make that not everybody is righteous and, and they will game the system. I mean, that's human nature. And unfortunately, it takes away from those that really do need the, the, the level of attention uh, that we're, we're talking about. And I, I know because I had a, a leader call me about a year after Ryan passed, who was dealing with his own issues and, and admitted to me the reason he was calling is because he bought into the whole freaking narrative that, hey, Ryan was gaming the system, you know, for a medical board. And then when he, you know, came to learn that, you know, Ryan, you know, had a severe brain damage and that there was something going on, he, he you know, was upset about that and and had, had gotten kind of sucked down a path that, you know, he regretted, and um, that's why we have to, you know, help um, at all levels. Leadership, you know, uh, you know, arm them with the right information, give them the tools to make the best decisions. I don't think anybody was out to do any harm to him. I don't think um, anything, you know. Uh, I, I just think. It was just the perfect storm, and we didn't know what we didn't know. Um, didn't know how to deal with it. Um, I do think, you know, for the exception of a few personalities, there were some, you know, individuals who just couldn't be bothered with it. Um, and and I will never forget them. And, um, but it is personality based. You know, whoever's at that key intersection. If they're sensitive to this, if they, they got their eyes open, they're looking for it, you know, they're trying to understand it, then they can do a lot of good for folks that are challenged with, with some of these conditions. If you get the wrong person in that intersection, they can do a lot of damage, a lot of damage. And uh, that's why we need the science. And, you know, leadership is, is something that obviously, you know, you talk a lot about, I talk a lot about. We're in a new era of leaders right now. Um, I call it leadership by lawyer, where you know we have leaders who are making decisions without, you know, getting the approval from their lawyer. And it, it's, in my opinion, it's it's eroding uh, our edge. Um, what makes us different from our competitors is that you know our forces have always been given the license to innovate to immediately flex and pivot to conditions 
and we push that down to the edge um, where people can adjust immediately on the battlefield or in any condition to, to accomplish their mission. But we're getting away from that. You know, everything's becoming so politically correct. And I, I used to remember when I would complain about, you know, risk-adverse behavior. <laughs> Boy, I, I'll take that back in a minute because now it's no-risk behavior. And it's paralyzing us. And uh, I don't know, I don't know, um, other than, you know, putting it right out in people's faces, I don't know how we're going to get around this. Um, and, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. And maybe I'm taking this conversation in a different direction, but so much of this does come back to leadership and being able to accept the responsibility and be accountable for decisions. And again, it's not a perfect world. It's not a fair world. But you know, you got to have the freaking nuts to make the decision when you need to make it, especially when people's lives are at stake or, you know, greater consequence is at stake. And it's not always going to go right. And, and some of the best scenarios that I've been in, which have taken courage on my part and, and other leaders that I've been with, is then when they let their people go do their job. Yeah, they're going to bang into stuff. And it may not always go the right way. But, you know, more times than not, I have been completely overwhelmed with what's come back. Far exceeded my expectations. Far exceeded any level of performance that, that I had for that particular mission or, or operation. Yeah, the fourth law of combat leadership that I talk about is decentralized command, which means you're going to let your subordinates leaders lead. And guess what? When you do that, there's a level of risk. And if you're not willing to take that level of risk, you're going to end up being a micromanager. Now you can't maneuver. Now people aren't making things happen. And now you're going to be slow. And now you're going to lose. But it does take a level of trust and a level of you. You, you got to be willing to accept the fact that sometimes you're going to get you're going to get in trouble. You're going to get your boss going to look at you and say, "What the hell is going on?" You're going to say, "Yep, boss, it's on me." Some you know I. I put the guys out there. They did something I didn't expect, but that's my, that's not on them. That's on me. I gave them the parameters. I told them what to go execute. They executed. They didn't do it the way I thought they were going to do it. I'll I'll make sure it doesn't happen again. But that's what went down. And if you have people that aren't willing to take that risk, they're just micromanagers. And now things don't move, and and you don't win. That's what happens. So, yeah, leadership, hundred percent. Um, you've got warriorcall.org this is sort of I, I would call this sort of the 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 physical or organizational representation of what you're trying to do talk to me through uh, warriorcall.org what's its mission what's it doing so hey uh, I'm glad you brought that up it's really a grassroots deck plate dirt level effort to reach out to those that are isolated and you know what we found is isolation um, is, a, is a key factor that often plays into some of these suicide um, scenarios that you know we we come in contact with you know as somebody separates from their tribe you know especially if it's not on positive terms and you know and again you know if, if they're burdened by labels uh, which can be extremely damaging and you know they lose their sense of you know, a purpose, and they lose their dignity, and so forth. And with that, they start to lose hope. Um, and in, in 
you know, many cases they start distrusting the system. They start sliding into dark places. And it's like it's like being dropped down into a well. The further you go, the less bright the light is. You know, it starts to shrink. And, and so, does, so does that hope. And I think they get to a place where they feel there's no way out. Um, I think that with a lack of qualification, that if they are injured, uh, or, or what they're dealing with is as a consequence of their service. If they don't have any level of consequence, uh, you know, uh, confirmation that they're hurt or, or that this, as I said, is a consequence of their service, then, uh, and, and they're being told, you know, that, you know, they're mentally, you know, unstable or they get some type of other mental health issue, um, that doesn't put them in a good spot. If they, um, feel as a, if we've been talking, if they've abandoned their brothers, their teammates, that doesn't put them in a good spot. Uh, if they feel that they're a burden to their loved ones, that really puts them in a good spot. But then I would say the fourth thing is this is institutional betrayal. That if they've given it all to their their unit, mm-hmm. to their community, to their agency service, and that turns on them, that 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 inflicts a tremendous amount of damage. So, you know, the warrior call effort is really to connect up with those folks, make a call, whether it's a physical phone call, a, a text message, or do a drive-by, or take a call from them. If, you know, for whatever reason, it comes out of the blue, that call comes from a veteran or an active duty or a first responder, somebody who served in uniform, and have an honest conversation, you know, just, you know, Get past the, the formalities of, hey, how you doing? I haven't talked to you in a while, but, you know, kind of have a, have a regular conversation. You know, you don't need to be a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a so- social worker to have this conversation. It's, it's, it's me calling Jocko saying, hey, Jocko, man, we haven't talked in a while. How you been? You know, I just, you know, I was paging through my, 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 uh, my contacts here. I saw your name. I just thought I'd shoot you a call. And how you been? What have you been up to? And, you know, through that, you know, the conversation's going to build. And, and, and more times than not, we've gotten reflections back from the guys and gals that we can't put a finger on why the call came when it did, the time it came, whatever, but it came at the right time. That somebody connected up and pulled them away from the line. Let them know that they weren't alone, that somebody cared, and that there was hope. And so that's what Warrior Call is all about. And uh, um, yesterday, uh, initiative led by uh, Congressman Derek Van Orden in the House passed unanimously to codify National Warrior Call Day. It had already passed in the Senate, so it's got to go into conference right now in order for it to become law. But we wanted this day as a stake you know, in the ground to say to our, our, our general population, let alone our active duty and those that have served in uniform, that this is how they can help. Because we always get asked, how can I help my vet, the veterans? How can I help contribute? Well, this is one simple way. You pick up this thing called a phone and you make a call and see where it goes. And if you sense that somebody's not in a good place, then you align them with some resources. You stay connected to them. It's like our old buddy line system. 
you know, we hook a buddy line onto somebody, you know right away whether that person's going off in a different direction or lagging behind or or pulling you, you know, <laughs> at, 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 out of, you know, out of vector. But it, it's warrior call is just a simple kind of outreach directly related to isolation. Um, and, and you know something? We get equal reflection from the caller who after they've talked to somebody that they haven't connected with in a while, how much that has, has pumped them up. You know, it was like an injection of, of like energy to them. So, you know, National Warrior Call Day, I'm, I'm hoping that we can, you know, drag this into the end zone. Who knows with Congress, like, you know, as my days up there as, an, you know, the Senate Sergeant in Arms, you know, it was a four-year out-of-body experience. I mean, there's a lot of good people up on Capitol Hill trying to do the right thing, but you know, as we've then seen, there's everybody else. <laughs> yeah, and as we've seen recently, there's also a lot of distraction and uh, dysfunction. So, uh, I I will be, you know, I will not be a happy camper if they don't get this done. And I will, you know, keep poking them, you know, to to get it done. But if it doesn't get done, I'm not going to be a happy camper, and I'm going to let them know it. So hopefully that answers your question, but they can go to warriorcall.org to kind of get more information on this and, uh, and uh, see, see how they can help. It's, it's a matter of deputizing everybody that's out there that's listening right now to just simply make a call, take a call, have an honest conversation and, and stay connected. Yeah, no doubt about it. That's awesome. Um, It sounds like we're waiting on some, some studies to come out. In the in the next several months, that we might have more information, more things to talk about, um, what those things look like. But other than that, does that kind of, kind of I mean we've been talking for a few hours now? Is it kind of get us up to speed? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, let's face it. You know, uh, this is a tough subject. You know, uh, losing a son like Ryan, um, I realize that you know there's different sides of this story. Um, and I tried to keep an open mind to it, um, but you know the bottom line is I have a mission, and I'm not going to fail. I mean, uh, Ryan's sitting right here with me right now, and a lot of what I say is actually him talking through me, um, because he may not be here physically, but that energy goes someplace. And uh, as I said, he knew what he was doing that day. Um, you know, he he wanted to prove a point, and uh, his story, I think, is a catalyst for a lot of the changes that you alluded to, and certainly has opened up the discussion. And I'm hoping that the science is going to put a, a fine point on this, uh, because, you know, you only get good science by doing good science, and so far, you know, we've been handicapped by not having enough good science that has illuminated exactly what's going on here. But I do think that, you know, with our modern warriors, you know, we have to be prepared to answer these questions for them. We need to give them the confidence that, um, that we're going to take care of them in the event that, you know, something happens to them as they go forward and do, do the jobs that we ask them to do. And as simple as that, we have that obligation and we cannot leave any more behind. So, um, 
Jocko, I just want to thank you. And uh, what you're doing, and and certainly for the opportunity to talk about this. Um, you know, this isn't about me. It's never been about me. Um, I just feel fortunate that I've had the opportunity to, you know, come in contact with a lot of great people. Um, and they don't ha all have titles before their names or after their names. They're just good people who have not lost sight of being a good person and what it, you know, what you need to do to be a good person. And um, I love this nation. Um, I think that uh, we got to be careful that we, you know, don't take our eye off the ball because the enemy definitely has not taken the eye off the ball. I mean, they're, you know, in some cases with some of the behaviors in our society right now, I think, uh, you know, they're sitting back heating up the popcorn and they're just waiting for the, the right time. And if we don't pay attention, um, we're going to find ourselves in a bad spot. And that, that's not a political statement. It's just fact. Um, you and I uh, have been, you know, at the front end of this. And, and it's not going to go away. I, I remember the old saying that they used to, you know, when we were in theater, it was, you have the watch, we have the time. And they don't forget. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I'm hoping that, you know, that flag that we fight for, you know, with all the other stuff that's going on, um, you know, Folks within our society would not be able to step up and 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 you know blow their horns and wave their flags if it wasn't for that red, white, and blue flag that has created the environment that has allowed them to do that. And in very few places on this earth does that happen. So I hope that we don't give that up because once it's gone, we'll never get it back. Uh, yep, um, but we won't give it up. <laughs> Not on my watch, anyways. Not on my watch either. Uh, I don't know. Can't say much after that. Um, Echo Charles, you got any questions? Oh, actually, yeah. So you know, when you guys do like breaching, and you know, you talk about the crash grenades and all mm -hmm. that, is do you guys wear like ear protection? Is there any? Like, is yeah. there any additional equipment that you wear to like protect yourself from that kind of stuff? So yeah, you have. We used to wear ear pro most of the time. Yeah. Ear protection, like the literally like the little uh, things that you roll yeah. up and put in your ear. Yeah, yeah. In modern times, we now have uh, headsets yeah. that that are noise canceling headsets that also have your radio uh, my, uh, speaker yeah, inside of it. In yeah. So that's a, a huge advancement. I will say, like back in the day, we would do immediate action drills sometimes with no uh, ear pro. Yeah. as like ear pro appreciation so you'd kind of like according to the master chiefs from vietnam mm. be used to it and be oh, ready right. for it when it happens probably not the smartest thing in the world i think yeah. that's like getting used to getting getting prepared to get punched in the head by yeah. getting punched in the head it doesn't really help you yeah yeah so that's what it is now i can tell you like in combat and I've, you've probably heard me tell the story before like i watched my breacher you know, I'm standing, I'm, I'm up a ladder on a wall looking down into a com compound that we're about to enter a building and breacher puts the breach on the door, starts to try and back away from the breach. There's nowhere to go. There's some, you know, junk or whatever in the, in the, in the uh, courtyard. Mm. 
So I look at him, I'm watching him, I'm like, oh, he's, what's he gonna do? Oh, he's just gonna lay down right there. Sure enough, lays down right there and cracks this breach off. I mean, totally unsafe distance. And, you know, I like get, because I duck behind the wall, right? The breach, he says, turning steel, I get behind the wall, breach goes, jump over. I mean, go past him. He looks like he just, you know, he's walking around like he just got, you know, knocked out. Um, And that's kind of a, that's what you do, you know? So guys are exposed to a a lot of blasts. And, you know, just like, it's different for everyone. You know, Junior Seau, um, you know, you know Junior Seau is, I'm sure. I mean, you know, how's that, that guy who played football like a lot of other people played football, but the impact that it had on him was was terrible. Mm-hmm. And we don't know why, but we know that that's what happened. So, so the ear protection, you would think, and I don't know, maybe like ear protection is one thing, but isn't like the vibration yeah, in it's, and it's, of itself like yeah. more, you know, that's more of an impact than any so, ear protection. Really. So what they're finding out is that, you know, with this blast wave propagation over pressure yeah. that um, actually, you know, there's concern that maybe the helmet techni- the helmet is actually holding some of that blast wave oh, in. It's jamming them up. And then uh, to your point about uh, ear protection, it, it, that's, a, that's another uh, way into the brain. So loud noises and so forth actually create trauma to the brain, mm-hmm. um, as does um, what we're finding out is a lot of that blast wave is going in through the eye sockets. Now this is, you know, we'll get some more fidelity on that this coming up, but um, directly affecting the, the frontal lobe of the brain where our executive functions are. So that makes a lot of sense why we may see changes in behavior. So the neural science translation from the injury sites which are literally all through the brain, uh, the gray matter, the white matter, the, the lower brain uh, is showing damage at different degrees depending on the individual and the level of exposure. But it definitely will explain why somebody's having problems with regulation, uh, why they may not be able to sleep. It, it's gonna give us some hard evidence uh, once we perfect the diagnostics that'll allow us to make better decisions. But you know, some of the protection that we've had in the past that we've put a level of reliance on, we're finding out is not actually giving us as much protection as we think. There's also visual trauma that happens that we're finding out that somebody sees something, you know, that's horrific, you know, creates that kind of PTS, you know, baseline of, of, of a catastrophic, you know, exposure. That visualization, even though they don't come in contact with any physical forces, is actually causing changes in the brain. Mm-hmm. So we're early on into this. Um, we just need to understand it. And like I said, this is not about getting rid of folks that are hurt. This is about ensuring that we have the most formidable, resilient fighting force in the future. And how do we take care of our folks when they get hurt? You know, especially when they're doing the job we've asked them to do. Yeah. Anything else, Frank? Any closing thoughts? Now, I just, uh, like I said, you know, your focus on leadership. I know a lot of people are paying attention. Uh, that discussion needs to happen. I'd be glad to come back at any time to give you some more thoughts on that, just based on my, my experience. I don't know all the answers. I just, you know, 
you know, I've, I've drug around this black cloud that, you know, puts me in places where, you know, shit happens. And uh, you tend to learn, you know, you know, from the good things that happen, uh, you probably learn more from the bad things that happen. And um, some of my best uh, leadership takeaways have been from some, you know, being in the company of some horrible leaders where I, I just come back and say, well, there's no freaking way I'm ever going to do that or treat my people like that. But I do think there's still a lot of good leaders out there. Uh, I hope if they're listening, you know, I'm not saying that you don't need a lawyer uh, at some point to consult uh, on, on some things. But as I used to remind my lawyers, you have no decision making authority. All you do is provide me advice and counsel. It's up to me to choose what I am going to, you know, do. And I own that. Sure. I own it. Awesome. Um, well, thanks for joining us. Thanks for coming out here. I know, like you said, uh, you're a 68 year old active duty firefighter. So thanks for taking the time to come out here and join us. Thanks for your service. Um, you know, in the secret service, in the police, in the fire service, of course, uh, thanks for your service in the teams and, and your son's service as well. Our fellow frogman Ryan will remember him. We'll do our best to learn from what he went through so that his loss is not in vain your loss is not in vain and thank you for carrying on his message speaking for him so that we can help the veterans that are out there today thank you thank you Jocko and with that Frank Larkin has left the building lots to think about Lots of things that we can do as people to help other people out. Um, you know, staying on the path. Look, I know it's sort of uh, what's that word? Maybe it's it's sort of like trite thing for me to say. Oh, you be on the path. You know, maybe I say it too much. Maybe I don't explain it properly. Maybe. Maybe I do it too casually sometimes. But the path, it, 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 man, if you're not on the path, it, it can really cause you problems. You know what I mean? And, you know, when you hear about Ryan, look, all those issues, and then, like, you add into that, like, drinking. Just, yeah, man. And you could hear just, like, all of a sudden he's not drinking, not working out, and then you couple that with these these brain injuries man it's just a nightmare and definitely a horrible situation okay i mean it's unimaginable it's just unimaginable to uh, to to watch that unfold and even to hear you know his dad tell the story um and talk through it is just it's just a nightmare man yeah. um look you gotta we're, we're talking about mitigating this you know, in, in Ryan's case, you're talking about doing your best to mitigate, uh, you know, this, this, these brain injury from all these blasts and stuff and whatever m the moral injury, like you're trying to mitigate all this stuff, but that that's what, like, that's the best you can do, right? The, what you don't want to do is not try and mitigate it. And this is just so difficult. And I think really for, from my perspective as I was hearing this and it probably came through in some of my questions, you know, like what, what were you seeing? Because to me, 
when I see people that around me and they veer, they veer like off the path, that's when I start getting worried about them, right? Um, when all of a sudden they're doing things that we know they're not good for, right? We know this isn't going to work out. We know this isn't a good move. So that's just another thing going back to this like idea of warriorcall.org. When you got someone that you know that's at a broad level not doing the things that they should be doing, like do your best to reach out, connect with them, try and help them, try and get them pointed right back in the right direction. And having this kind of information is is very helpful. And and actually after we stopped recording, you know, Frank pointed out to me that you know because of NSW because of the SEAL teams there has been a focus on moving on discovering and learning more about this and you know to to the point of kind of what I opened up this whole thing about when they found these traumatic injuries to to Ryan's brain it's too late it's too late and because of that and because of Frank's efforts and because of the efforts of SEALs that have that are still active duty that got on board said, Yeah, this was a this was a mistake. What do we do to fix it? There is progress and they and they went to Special Operations Command and started doing these studies, which the results are forthcoming. So <sighs> um and you know, kind of what I closed out by saying, you know, let's make sure that that Ryan's loss and Frank and his family's loss wasn't in vain by trying to spread the word. It's the, I think it's the best thing we can do in this terrible situation. So terrible story, um, but we're going to take some lessons from it and try and have an impact out there. So that's what I got. Thanks for listening, everybody. Um, If you are on the path, go get yourself some Jocko Fuel. Get yourself some good, some good nutrition for your body. Get your hydrate. Get your greens. Get your creatine. You on creatine right now? Yes, sir. I am. It's a big deal, isn't it? It is a big deal. Part like of the everyday, the everyday protocol. <laughs> do you do one of the scoops? Yeah. So I one and a half. One and a half. Yeah. How come you up the levels? Well, because I was reading the real the protocols. Because I'm American and more is better. <laughs> I was reading the protocols. And remember back in the day when creatine first exploded on the scene, yeah. in my yeah, perif- yeah. periphery, they were like, there's the loading phase. Yeah, you got to yeah, take yeah. more and all this stuff. So it gets in your all this stuff. So I was reading about that and they were like, you know, you know, like that's not necessarily true, you know, but you know, all this stuff or whatever. So I was like, hey, if I just take one and a half scoops, I think we're good to go. Let's just round it up. Yep. That's what I did. And that's what I do. And hey, man. Do you do it before you work out? No. Like you just do it normal. It's part morning. of your daily. It's in your system. It's yeah, just flowing. Because exactly. I hear people talking about like they're doing it almost like before a workout. Like it's a pre-workout. Yeah. I don't think like it works I'm like that. I'm getting the extra heat for yeah, this it set. Does, it doesn't work like that though, I don't think. <laughs> hey, bro. Uh, well, let's hey. Let's let that placebo how about go. This? Let's let Whatever it ride. Works. Let's Whatever let works. Whatever works. Let it ride. But yeah, I'm going to let it ride. Uh, so we got that. We got mulk. I know you and I just pounded a mulk, so that's good. Get yeah. a little, because we were going catabolic, probably both of us. You did squats today, apparently? Yesterday. Yesterday? Yesterday. What did yes. you do today? I didn't do nothing today yet. Okay. I gotta get mentally ready for these okay. things. You know <laughs> Jockofuel.com. Uh, go get yourself some stuff. You can get it in stores too, which by the way is like awesome. When you go to a store and you buy some Jocko Fuel, it's very helpful. It lets people know, lets those stores know that 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 we're we're down for the cause. So Wawa, 
Vitamin Shop, GNC, Military Commissaries, AFES, Hannaford, Dash Stores in Maryland, Wake Farm, ShopRite, HEB down in Taos. Yes. They got the uh, end palette. What's it called? End cap. End cap. You know what that is? In the store? Yeah, in the store. It's like the end of the aisle kind of of a scenario. Like a cap on the end of the aisle. (laughs) We got that going on. Meyer in the Midwest, Harris Teeter, Lifetime Fitness, Shields, and then little gyms, you know, little gyms, little CrossFit gyms. If you're doing CrossFit, um, whatever you're doing, jujitsu gym, powerlifting gym, maybe it's just a regular old Globo gym. Globo gym. If you work at one of those or you own one of those, go to JFSales at JockoFuel.com if you want to sell some Jocko Fuel. Get yourself on the path. That you keep your system clean. You know, when people tell me they're tired or they, they can't sleep, I'm like, what are you eating? Yeah. Or when they're telling them they don't have energy, what are you eating? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's I such a huge thing. It's like you get you take your car yeah. and like I know you drive a Cadillac. Sure. Did I just breach protocol here? No, you're fine. So you got a Cadillac. Let's mm-hmm. say you put uh, Kool-Aid in your Cadillac. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, it wouldn't work. Were you expecting that thing to this run is, well? It'd be messed up. No. Yeah, yeah. What if we put kerosene in there? No, I, I probably wouldn't even sleep well if you put kerosene With in. your Cadillac, do you have to put the premium in? The premium gas Check. in there? You don't have to, but you, but know, you do. That's the recommended scenario for you sure. You put that Jocko <laughs> fuel in there. <laughs> hey, that's the deal, right? Yeah. You wanna you wanna stay clean. That's what you wanna do. Jockofuel.com, go get it. That's yeah. what we're doing. You you bring up a good point. It's a good way to look at it. And I'm not saying this just to say this is mm. for real a good way to look at it where it's like, you know, we look at ourselves as like well, I'm one person, yeah. you know, yeah. and that's it. But a more, how should I say, helpful way to look at it would be that you are a whole system. You're like a, in multiple systems working kind of together. And just like any system, you start jamming out one part of the system, it can jam up the other parts of the system. Yeah. So like if you can't sleep, there are probably other factors in there that's causing you not to be able to go to sleep because you sleep for a reason. Yeah. And if you have less of a quote unquote reason to sleep, then you're probably not going to sleep that good. And inversely, you stay awake for a reason. And if you give yourself more of a reason to stay awake when you don't want to stay awake, you're going to stay awake still. Yep. See what I'm saying? Because there's something else in the system. Yep. And what you eat, what you put in, it's part of that yep. system. And, and you know, I forgot to mention uh, Jocko Go, Discipline Go. It's a it's an energy drink. But I'll tell you what, this is not, this is so far. I was, we were talking, I was at a, a retailer. Sure. You retailer. Know, so a store. Sure. Talking about bringing in Jocko Fuel. And they're like, well, you know, we have an energy drink, this. And, and I go, hold on. I, yeah. I'm not, look, I didn't, did I get crazy? No, I didn't get crazy. But I was like, you, you sure about hey, that? Hey, hold on a second. I was like, because they have all their, they have like a bunch of different energy drinks, right? Mm. And I'm like, well, ours is different. They're like, well, I mean, it's an energy drink, whatever, like bl- blowing me off. Yeah. Blowing me off, not really blowing me off, but definitely I was getting some, what we call vibes. Vibes, okay. Yeah. And I said, hold on. And I like looked at the can and the ingredients are like uh, the whole back of the can. And it's a bunch of nine syllable chemicals and stuff like that. I go, let me tell you what we got in here. I picked up a can and go, and I'm like, uh, here's the ingredients. Filtered, carbonated water, right? That's number one. Natural flavors, citric acid, which is what is like in an orange. Tea, because this is uh, the can that I have was, uh, tea. yeah, tea. tea. Um, monk fruit, and then fermented cane sugar. That, that's what's in it. That, that, that's the end of the eat ingredients list. Mm. Okay. Now, does it have some nootropics in there? Yes, it does. You know, so it's got vitamin B12 and vitamin B6, and it's got caffeine. It's got alpha G. So it's got other 
ingredients in it, but all these things are good for you. That's why we put them in there purposefully. So this is not normal. It's not normal. It's a totally different gig. It's a totally different gig. And I wish I could think, I wish I was better at thinking what we should call it. You know what I mean? Because you can't yes, call I it do. an energy drink because it doesn't, it's like, yeah, you get the it's stigma. a different thing. Yeah. It's a stigma, yeah, right? Yeah. This, is, this is literally good for you. So I'm like, I'm, I'm asking this retail person. I said, why would anyone drink anything else when they could have this, which is literally good for you? Yeah. And she, like her face was changing. Yeah. I'm like, read the ingredients in that one. And she like looks at it and she's like, I can't. I was like, no, you can't. You can't. You don't know what that word is. That's not English language. That's a different foreign language, chemical language. Chemical. That's the chemical languages. We don't, we're not speaking that over here. No. So this is, this is no downside. Get something that's clean for you and it gives you energy. Does that make it an energy drink? Technically, yes, it does. Is it an energy drink like the rest of these disgusting things that are out there? being marketed to you, it's not the same thing. It's not the same thing. So there you go, get you some of that too, jockofuel.com. Good idea, speaking of the tea, that was the first, I know it's gonna sound crazy, I never had the new tea, the tea since the flavors got revamped. Assessment. Good, very good. I don't know if you noticed how fast I pounded it Pounded too. it. Pounded it. If I'm gonna go good. home and jack some steel? Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, from, from most likely, yeah. yes. But yeah, good deal on the tea, tactical tea by the way. Tactical tea. All right, there we go. Uh, OriginUSA.com. Don't forget, you can get awesome American-made clothing. Gi. Everything you need. What do you need? At night, you need a gi. You probably need a rash guard, so you're doing gi, no gi class. You're yep. going to go out for a date with your girl. Yes. You're going to wear a pair of jeans. Yep. You got to put boots on for that. Yep. You're going to wake up in the morning, work out. That's RTX. Yep. When you get done working out, you're going hunting. <laughs> <laughs> we got of course, gear. Of course, of course. When you get done with that, it's going to be cold. You're going to put a sweatshirt on. Yeah. We got you covered. And then you're going to go to work, t-shirt and jeans. Yep. Also, so everything that you need, we got you. Yeah. All you, 100% American made. And we, and I see why, but you did, there was some detailed stuff in there that you did kind of pass over, which is fine. I, but I don't pass over these things. I notice these things. Socks. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I wear origin socks. <laughs> oh, belt. You. Oh, yes. I wear origin belt. Yeah. Wallet. Wallet. Oh, yeah. Wait, you know, say that again. Belt. Socks, uh-huh. wallet. So it's interesting you say wallet and you don't say wallet because normally you say weird things yeah, like cotton. Because T is the last like letter or whatever, uh, you know? Okay. So they say cotton, you say cotton. Mm-hmm. What else am I going to say? Cotton? That's Just what I forget say. about the T. That's what I say. No more. So, uh, so if there's letters after the T, you forget about the T. You know who says cotton? My daughter Hannah. Well, there you go. She's on <laughs> she the was right, saying that something the, the, right the other day. She cotton, says it's made yeah. of cotton. I was like, what? Where are you from? Cotton, mountain, important. Um, and yet. Okay, so in Hawaii, there's, there, I think it's Japanese though, but the last name is Soto. Mm-hmm. S O T O. Say Soto. 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 No, not S O D O. Soto. It's hard, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of the hard one, if you don't say. Anyway, sidetracked. Um, but yes, the <laughs> origin has plenty of stuff. Co- uh, co- the cotton that origin uses made in America, mm. by the way. Grown in America. Technically, we're not making cotton. Made by nature. Okay, cool. Grown OriginUSA.com, go get some. That's true. Also, Jocko Store, he has a store. It's called Jocko Store. Uh, it's where you can do discipline equals freedom shirts, hats, hoodies, merch. If you will, it's more than merch though. It's good. It's like wearable. A lot of people say their their favorite T-shirt comes from Jocko Store. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's the best fitting shirts that we have there. Also, we have the shirt locker, which is a subscription scenario. You get a new design every month. It's a good one. 
this next month. So this month, I should have saved it for January, mm-hmm. but I didn't. The count is zero. Oh. Next month, December, the last month of the year, was it more appropriate for the last month. It is uh, until the end, but it Dang. looks good. You should have flipped those two. No, I should have put the count is zero for January. Yeah, that's what I mean. And then and December also, is still to, to, until the end. Until the end is a good end of the year thing, right? Yeah, yeah. That one's correct for December. That's the December. So December. when's the January one? The January. When's Janu- the count to zero? This this month, November. Oh, okay. Yeah, Bad strategic planning on your part. <laughs> it is what it is, you know. Hey, but we're looking. We're gonna. We're looking. We're looking to improve every single month. So yeah, check that out. It's on JockoStore. All right. Um, also, get some get some steak. Just make yourself feel better with steak. It's medicine. Medical grade steak. Is that a thing? <laughs> that doesn't sound. <laughs> Pharmaceutical like the, grade steak? No, no, that's bad. How about just nature steak? Nature steak. For yeah, sure. that's what we're doing. Uh, ColoradoCraftBeef.com, PrimalBeef.com, two awesome companies making awesome steaks for you to put in your oven, on your grill, next to your fire, or raw if you just want to get some and just eat it, right? And just get stronger because that's what we're doing. These are awesome steaks, awesome companies. Also, subscribe to the podcast. Also, JockoUnderground.com. Also, YouTube. Subscribe to the YouTube. Check out the Jocko Podcast YouTube channel plus the Origin USA YouTube channel plus the Jocko Fuel YouTube channel. Some various channels to get on. Uh, Psychological Warfare, FlipsideCanvas.com, Dakota Meyer, making cool stuff to hang on your wall. A bunch of books. I've written a bunch of books. Get them. Echelon Front, we have leadership consultancy. We solve problems through leadership. We also have events. We, we, we go into companies and work with companies. We also have events that you can come to. We solve problems through leadership. That's what we do. Whatever problems you're having, they're leadership problems. And we will help you solve those problems through leadership. Go to echelonfront.com for details. We also have an, an online training academy. It's extremeownership.com. We put courses up there that you can take, that you can learn the skill of leadership to use with your family, to use at work, to use with your kids, to use for yourself. Help you become a better leader, and that's what will help you in life, extremeownership.com. Also, if you want to help service members active and retire, you want to help their families, Gold Star families, check out Mark Lee's mom, Mama Lee. She's got a charity organization, awesome organization. Go to americasmightywarriors.org if you want to donate or you want to get involved. Also, check out heroesandhorses.org, Micah Fink's organization, Jimmy May's organization, beyondthebrotherhood.org, and of course, Frank Larkins. Check it out, Warrior Call. Dot org, And if you want to connect on the interwebs, uh, Frank Larkin's organization is at warriorcall.org on the interwebs. He's also got a Twitter at warriorcallday and Facebook at warriorcall. Also, Echo and I are both also on there as well. Echo is at Echo Charles. I am at Jocko Willink. Just watch out for the algorithm, which wants to suck your brain and your time away and never give it back to you. Thanks once again to Frank Larkin for coming down. Thanks for his service in in the Navy, in the police, in the Secret Service, in the Fire Service, and thanks for your son's service as well, Ryan Larkin. We will not forget. Thanks to all our military personnel out there and our veterans. And listen, if you need help, reach out. Reach out, reach out to some of your friends. And if you don't need help, Reach out to your friends. 
But you don't know what people are going through. Stay connected. Call your friends. And the same thing goes to our police, law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, dispatchers, correctional officers, Border Patrol, Secret Service, all first responders. Stay connected. Call each other. You keep us safe. Keep each other safe as well. And to everyone else out there, you know what? You don't have to be a first responder. You don't have to be in the military. It's the same message. Stay connected to your friends, to your people, to your family. Call, text, swing by. People need people. People need people. Don't let time slip by a week, a month, a year, a few years. People become isolated. They become alone. And that's when bad things happen. Don't let bad things happen. Connect with your friends. We are stronger together. And until next time, this is Echo and Jocko out.